welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire gaming. I'm Julius, and this is episode 76, Long Live the Revolution. Hi, this is Julius, and I'm here with Albert. Hello, everybody. And thank you all for coming back. And uh, we're sorry we're going to be having another long show. I know that last time was a little bit longer than we normally have it, and this one is again going to be a little bit longer than we normally have it, so... I guess we hope you guys like the long shows. Yep, that's right. If you like long shows or if you don't, let us know just so we have some feedback. This show is long because uh, we have a – last week I, I hosted the one-player podcast, print-and-play, solitaire design contest, roundtable discussion, Google Hangout. And that's the long title for that. And and that just ran a long time. It was 90 minutes long. So we're, we're going to play that for you guys today in case you were not able to, to see or hear the Hangout. And I know that just because of timing, I personally wasn't able to attend, but I enjoyed listening to it, and I hope that all of you guys will too. And I know that we're also having some more long segments, but we're getting we're getting more feedback from some of the board game designers, especially ones who have posted up both to Kickstarter and through uh, other conventional publishing means, who are coming back and wanting to talk to us about their solo gameplays and things like that. So we're happy to hear more from board game designers. And also feel free to point out to us anyone else that you want to hear interviews from. But that's some of the reason why we're ending up with these longer shows, and we hope that you guys are enjoying it. Yep, that's right. So let's head into the news, Albert. All right, let's do that. I have a couple items. The first thing is a, a game called Vampire Hunter, Hunters by Darkgate Games. This game is not on Kickstarter yet, but it will be at some point. I don't know when. They don't have any dates. It's a miniatures game in which one to four players are trying to fight vampires. Really creepy looking vampires too. Um, the game uses a modular board system and it brings ten scenarios in the box. Um, <clears throat> now, it, it's not clear since I don't go into a lot of detail, but it uses a, some sort of innovative mechanic in which everybody gets to do stuff even when it's not their turn. So you don't sit around waiting for your turn, you know, like half an hour between turns and that sort of thing. It, I hope there's not going to be a half hour between <laughs> Gosh, I hope not. <laughs> um, now, it will be a Kickstarter at some point. You can sign up on a mailing list to get notified via Facebook. They, they have a Facebook page, and it's got lots of pictures there and a video you could watch. And if if you share the video, you'll get entered in the contest to win the game when the Kickstarter starts. So I know that we're going to be sharing that Facebook link to our page. But if you want to go take a look there, they have a lot of really cool pictures of some of the minis and some of the art. I know that in addition to the vampires, they have a lot of all the monsters and creatures that the good guys get to face up there right now, or at least when we're looking at it. And some of these, like the burrowers that are there, this huge creature with these claws and almost what look like vestigial wings behind them. Huge. Just looks like he can bash down anything. Gigantic <laughs> creature. Yeah, they're very creepy looking, I think. I, I, I like the way that all these things look. Looks very nice. Mm-hmm. The second item I have is a Conflict the Heroes... I'm sorry, Conflict of Heroes, Awakening the Bear, Firefight Generator. This is a new expansion for Conflict of Heroes. It's going to be coming at the same time as the solo expansion. And this expansion is used to create scenarios. So it's sort of like a meta game that you play before the actual game. And you're, the players are competing. They're playing different cards, trying to, out, I guess, outmaneuver and bluff and, and play the best cards to set up the scenario before the game starts. And then based on the cards you played, you then play that scenario. And hopefully, if you played that that meta game well, you're you're in a better situation to begin with than your opponents. So I know Albert. I'm not so familiar with Conflict of Heroes, and I don't know how many of our li- listeners are. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Conflict mm-hmm. of Heroes just itself? Have you played the game? I've played it a couple times. Um, I haven't gotten into it too far, but it's a it's a World War II skirmish game in which you're playing 
small, you know, I don't really know different unit size and all that, but you're playing small units, um, maybe platoons or something like that. I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. And you, you're, it's sort of at the same level as Combat Commander, if you're familiar with that game. Yes. And in it, it's, it's similar to Combat Commander. You're playing firefights. It's Germans against Russians, and it brings 10 different scenarios that you could play. So this expansion is going to have a lot of different stuff. It uses a... It, it, it's neat the way you activate units because each turn you could activate one unit and you, then you have you go back and forth at, with that unit you've activated taking one action at a time while your opponent is doing something else. And, and it actually makes the game really fun. There's a lot of tension deciding if you want to stop using this unit and go activate another unit because your opponent's doing something at the opposite end of the board you need to stop. And that's sort of thing. And it's really neat. And it also has tanks as you get into the later scenarios. And it uses a card system to control the tanks and the units? Uh, it's, the cards give you, I haven't played up to the cards yet, but they give you, like, events that you could play and different things you could do. You, you always have activation points to activate the units. And so for this expansion, you said there's two expansions? There's Awakening the Bear and a solo expansion? Well, the, there's two expansions coming out. One is a solo expansion which they announced a few years ago, and I pre-ordered a few years ago, and apparently it will be shipping soon. I think it's at the printer, that is what they said. Um, oh, that's a long wait. It, and they may have said that more than once. I'm not sure. It's uh, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, honestly. But th- it, there has been a lot more activity lately, so I do think it's actually coming out imminently. And this, there's a solitaire expansion, and then there is the Firefight Generator, which is the other expansion. You could pre-order them each for about... $35 from their page and I believe when they hit stores will be $45 retail the firefight generator will the firefight generator can, can be used with a solo expansion so you can create random solitaire scenarios and I'll have links for that on the show notes okay very cool and so you're saying that they're going to be shipping they're both should theoretically be shipping soon yes and they will ship together so if you pre-order both I believe you'll get both at the same time so moving on to Kickstarter news, now I know that there's been a number of other Kickstarters that have come, and hopefully we should continue to see more Kickstarters continue to support one-player friendly stuff, so let's go ahead and go through some of them this time. Uh, the first thing that we're going to talk about is Birds of a Feather. Now, Birds of a Feather normally plays more players, up to seven, and it's a little card game about hunting or not hunting for birds but searching for birds taking pictures of them bird watching out of nature and it plays almost like a puzzle and i'm not quite sure whose idea it was it's perhaps possible that ricky royal even suggested the idea of making the solo play compatible originally but they're coming out with a solo play version where you play it basically like a puzzle trying to gain the maximum score as you go through the cards in this game and again, it's called Birds of a Feather and has some very interesting pictures of birds. And it's a very, very pretty little piece uh, going on Kickstarter. And it's going to be funding very soon. Funding for this one's going to be ending on April 2nd. And a $19 pledge is going to be uh, is going to include the game. Did you take a look at this one, Albert? I have not. Does that $19 include shipping? The shipping is included free for the U.S. and $5 for Canada and $10 for the rest of the world. Sometimes shipping changes so much based upon where you're, where you are that I don't normally talk about it, but that's what it is for this one. Okay. So let's go ahead and look at Train Heist, the next Kickstarter that at least I'm aware of. This is a cooperative train robbery game. 
I've heard some other friends of mine who like this one because it's got uh, anthropomorphic animals that you're playing as, as the robbers. It's listed as a game of right and wrongs and robbing trains. <laughs> one of the neat parts of this game is that there's two sets of meeples that the characters will get to play as. You'll get to play as both the heroic cowboys who are trying to rescue money and save the town from the evil sheriff but you also get some horses and the actual meeples for the cowboys will fit and ride on the cowboy meeples which very thoughtful and insightful they could have just done it as as horse tokens that they sit on the horse tokens but having it all interplanted to connect like that shows that they really thought about how the game will all work together so i, I appreciate that uh, thought that goes in that design it looks like a neat game a more simpler co-op and i know that it's definitely intended as a more lighter co-op for example the train when it gets to a certain place on the track will magically sort of teleport to the other side of the board (laughs) i mean it's clearly it's this is this is not your hyper-realistic you know train robbery or hyper-realistic war game but it looks like a fun little game as you're running around trying to rob enough money in order to keep the towns well-fed and well-provisioned before the train gets around to them. A fun little co-op, and also does support uh, one player when you're playing as multiple players. Okay. It, it looks fun. It looks really cute, too. I like the art. My kids will be all over this one. I imagine so, especially with the little train. It also comes with the little train meeples, where you move the train along the tracks, you have to keep pushing it forward. This is one of those ones where I imagine my kids would just want to pick up the train and move <laughs> the train around the track instead of playing it. But yeah, for this one, it's going to be it's a $36 pledge for the game, and the funding is going to end on April 14th. Next up is Lords of the Ice Garden. Now, then, this one is also on Kickstarter in its second edition. This is a game with minis, and it's got a bunch of minis. Uh, I can't figure out how many minis right now. At least 20 or so. But it's got a bunch of pretty minis all in the different colors. The players get to play as red, black, blue, or green. And all the minis have different sets for them and all of them unique. Very nice minis for this game. The idea of the game is that you are controlling the magic of the Lord of the Ice Guard board and placing out the minis to control it and control the areas uh, to control the areas on the board a very direct conflict game and now then this one has a solo variant of the game which is still in development now i know that ricky royal uh highlighted this one he went through the solo version of the game on his youtube channel the variant that includes the solo demo is being tested currently and it's still in development but just from looking at it and looking at everything else on it, it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. So if you're interested in that, this one also, it does come with minis, so it's a little more expensive. It's a $75 pledge to get the game, and the funding on this one is going to end on April 6th. Okay, and this is a great-looking game. I, I love the artwork on this. I really like the minis. It's unfortunate that I don't buy very many mini games because <laughs> they're so much more expensive, but the minis look really nice. I know that I really... Blue is my favorite color, and I know that I like the blue ones in this one. It comes with what looked like almost blue dragons for one of the units. Now you can also just pledge for the minis if you if you're interested, including this really neat looking castle in a volcano sort of thing, in which you could put your your cubes on. So next up is one called Dexicon. This one's being published by Eagle Games, and it's going to be another one of their egg game series. So I don't think that they're intending on this one being another heavy one, but. 
this one is for those of you out there who like the word games. And I know at one point in time we're hoping that we're going to have a word games episode. Maybe this will be out by then. But it's another mix between a deck building game and a a word game, a spelling game. Now, I know that there was another one out there that this reminded me of called Paperback. I don't know if you've ever played Paperback, Albert? I have not. Uh, I'm not sure. I think that it's... I'm not sure if it's still... If it's been published yet or if it's only the PMP. I know that I played the PMP a while ago. But this is another one that reminded me of Paperback because here you're once again using words and that gets you money and gets points. But with this one, it almost feels like they've thrown in another game's mechanics because now you have to bank words that you spell for points but when you do that you get less money so you have to figure out if you want to bank a powerful word for points if you want to keep it for more powerful money and also the game will only end when someone's banked seven point seven words so you don't want to fall behind on banking but on the other hand if you don't bank then you get more money so that you theoretically have a more powerful word to bank later so it's a nice interplay. And this one can be played solo, where you're trying to play through and you're just trying to get it the best. Again, this is one of those where you get the most points possible and just trying to get the best words, the best points possible. So this one's coming from Eagle Games. Uh, it's just about to fund. I imagine that probably by the time this podcast drops, it's going to have funded. A $12 pledge gets you the game for this one, and funding is going to be ending on April 9th. Nothing to say about me. Sorry. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> the next one I'm going to be doing is Cosmic Run, which is from the designer of Biblios, and it's a space race going for one to four players. Now, the game itself can be played either cooperative, com- cooperatively or competitively. In this game, it's a pretty simple dice rolling game where you want to keep rolling your dice to try and get pairs or sets and work your way up the track for the planets so that you can save them from meteor strikes. But every time you save a planet from meteor strikes, it's more likely that one of your other planets are going to be saved from meteor strikes. And so you can play it either competitively or cooperatively when you're playing with multiple people. And so when you're playing alone, so you can just play the solo mode and try to save the, save the planets before the meteors destroy them. On the one hand, you'll want to get victory points to construct force fields to keep the meters at bay, but you want to get enough victory points to actually do well on the final score. The game is primarily about rolling dice, so it's not a very heavy game, but it looks like a lot of fun trying to trying to roll the dice with that mechanic. Also comes with some nice alien cards that uh, give a little bit more. It's not just a pure Yahtzee with those alien cards, because you have to decide when you want to spend the aliens and when you want to hold on to them. They give you some extra powers, like you can re-roll a dice or change a dice number. Yeah, and this is a this is a light game. It's not a very deep game. As a matter of fact, it was uh, the idea came was. As a matter of fact, the idea. Wow, oh, I'm not trying to say. As a matter of fact, it was co-designed by uh, the son of. Uh, well, the game is being published by Doctor Finn's Games. They made Beeblewills, and it was co-designed by Doctor Finn and his son. Where do I recognize Doctor Finn from? Beeblewills. Just Biblios? I believe so. Let them eat shrimp. What are some other games? He's got a few out there. But yeah, so this one looks like a nice little game. And a $28 pledge will get you this one. Now for another one that I'm personally very interested in called Wizards Academy. This is a cooperative game where they have a very unique mechanic for this one. And I'll get to it in just a second. But the idea of this game is that your set of... 
I guess not. They're not all humans, so I can't say humans, but I guess people, characters. You're a set of characters in a magical academy, which is under attack by the enemy will depend upon which scenario you're playing on, but let's say demons. Under attack by demons. You'll play out the rooms of the academy at random, and the rooms will even change. The academy will shift over the course of the game. It'll change every game you play, and it'll shift over the course of the game. And you're trying to defend the academy from attack and onslaught from the enemies until you can reestablish the academy and banish the enemies. The very unique mechanic for this one is the way spellcasting works. You have a grid of spells out on the board, and they're all face down. And you'll spend glyphs to pick from your grid, using all the X and Y based upon which glyphs you're spending. And the glyphs will pick which spell, but originally you have no idea which spells you're going to be casting. So as soon as you cast the first time, you'll flip over that spell, you'll realize what spell you've casted, and you'll go ahead and cast that spell to whatever effect it is. Now, some of the spells work to do something good. Some of the spells are botches. And sometimes the botches help, sometimes they will totally mess you up, like they'll teleport you to the opposite end of the of the academy, which can be trouble, <laughs> especially if it drops you right into a batch of fire and you burn and die. But you don't know what it is. And then as soon as you cast it, it turns back over so it's it turns back over so it's face down. But now, theoretically, you know where it is. So later, once you get back to the library, you can lock in that spell and learn it. And once you learn it, you flip it back over and you permanently know where it is. But until then, you just simply have to remember. And it's to your advantage to try and remember as many as you can, because when you're at the library, you can do as many as you remember. So you want to try and remember them all, work on your memory a little bit. and But at the same time, you don't want to push your luck too far, because sometimes some of the bad things are that they'll shuffle all around and you haven't locked. That mechanic is unique and very interesting. And I like seeing some interesting mechanics out there. It's always nice to see new mechanics coming out. Yeah, I, I like the the way you're learning in this game. It, it really simulates the, the idea that you're you're a young wizard and you're learning spells, and it's going to take time to figure things out. It also simulates the idea that you don't necessarily know what's going to happen, because with some other games that I've played, you have your hand of cards, you play them, and you know which one is going to happen. With this one, you don't necessarily know. And that's fun. It's very exciting because you're like, oh, man, I really hope I don't get dropped right here because I'm covered in fire. I would really love to have one that puts out all this fire. But unfortunately, it put me right into the fire. And you just don't know. And that can be very exciting and very fun. Yeah, this sounds really cool. It's very interesting to me that it also has anthropomorphic characters in here. Uh, I mean, I've seen three or four different games like that lately on Kickstarter. All of a sudden. And just a very interesting trend, which I appreciate. I like games like that. I've always thought anthropomorphic characters are fun. Especially when they come in mini form. Now, this one does come with minis. It comes with minis for both the characters, many of which are anthropomorphic. I don't think they're all anthropomorphic. But it comes with minis for the characters and minis for the bad guys. And as with any minis, unfortunately, it does make it get more expensive. That means that this one is going to be 60 pounds, about 88 bucks to get it. Very pretty game, a little bit expensive. It's a cooperative game, so if you play solo, so you're going to have to control multiple characters. I don't think that they have any solo mode where you can play just one character. So you'll have to play cooperatively with multiple characters. But it definitely looks like a lot of fun. And that one's going to be ending on April 17th. Cool. So the last one that we're having today is Post Human, which is coming out from Mr. B Games. Now, 
This one has not been going for so long when I was told about it and looked at it. Posthuman is a game where you're humans, theoretically, or at least you start as humans, and you'll be going through on a journey to try and reach the fortress, and the end game is to reach this fortress of humans who are all now protected against the other mutants. But along the way, you may be turned into a mutant yourself by getting scars, or which is the equivalent to damage in the game. And then if you get too many scars, you are very likely to turn to a mutant, and that'll be it. Now then, they've pegged this game as being one to four players. In my review of their Kickstarter, I didn't see how you play it as one to four players. I can assume that the way it is is that perhaps you have a limited amount of time to make it to the fortress. Usually when I see these sort of questions, I will reach out to the publisher and get it and ask them. I have not yet received an answer back from the publisher. I hope to do so before the next Kickstarter, so hopefully I can come back with more of a description about how the solo mode of this game works before the next podcast. Cool, okay. This looks like fun. Yes, it does. I know that the it comes with a bunch of custom dice, which you get to roll throughout the course of the game, and you're playing, trying to move along towards it. But it could be that hopefully by the next podcast we'll have uh, more to discuss about it when we hear back from the publisher. So we'll hold off on more until next podcast. Sounds good. All right, that's it for the Kickstarter news. One more item. I got contacted by Dan Pancaldi. Uh, he suggested I should watch a Stuka Joe's video playthroughs on B- on YouTube. Um, Stuka Joe's his BGG username and also his YouTube channel. He does uh, video playthroughs. Not all the games are solitaire, but some are. And I sat down and watched a... Raid on Saint Nazaire. It was in four parts and it's not finished. I think there's going to be one more. And I gotta say, these things are amazing. Um, they really, really honestly feel like you're watching a History Channel documentary. The, uh, the music, which is also, is by Dan Pencaldi and definitely worth checking out for. Um, the, the, the music feels like you're watching a documentary. The narration is fantastic. The first episode is telling you about the history of what actually happened. And then the next episodes play through the game. And honestly, I forgot I was watching the game being played and thought I was just watching more history. Um, it, it, I was even biting my nails just because it was so tense. So the highly recommend you go watch these if you haven't before. Now, as a matter of fact, uh, Dan Pancaldi contacted me and he offered to do some music for us. So this episode is going to feature some music by him in, in between different segments. And hopefully we'll continue to use that going forward. So what sort of games does Stucka Joe cover? So mostly it seems to be war games or, or that style of games. He's done Raid on St. Nazaire, D-Day on Taro Beach, B-17 Queen of the Skies, Dawn of the Zeds. I'm curious, when he did Dawn of the Zeds, because I haven't watched that one yet, but you commented that he tries to make it into a dramatic narrative. How does he describe Dawn of the Zeds? I, I don't know. The That was my experience with Raid on St. Nazaire. I'm assuming he's putting the same amount of effort into all of these, but that that should be fun to watch. We'll have to take a look at that one then. That should definitely be very cool. And, and for Raid on St. Nazaire, he actually created different blocks and mounted the counters on the blocks. And when there was explosions, there were little explosion stickers that would put on it and, and give it a nice 3D effect. It was very neat. Very cool. I'm glad to see that he's putting a lot of work into it. It's always nice to see these YouTube people who are putting a lot of work into their things make it look really nice. So thank you very much to Stucka Joe for making such a nice YouTube channel. And to Dan for, for pointing it out to us and for the music. All right, so that's all the news that we have for today. We're now going to be playing for you guys the 2015 Solitaire PMP Contest Roundtable. 
where we went and talked with a number of different commentators about the Solitaire PMP. So we hope you enjoy listening to it. And after the roundtable, we'll come back with our game of the podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the One Player Podcast Special Edition Print and Play Solitaire Design Contest Roundtable Discussion. And that's a really long title. Um, I have with me Chris Hansen, host of the contest. Hello, how do you do? Uh, Jake Staines, a game designer. Ryan, Ryan Mays, also a game designer. Hello. And Todd Sanders, another game designer. A lot of game designers today. Hello. All right, so we are here to talk about... The print and play contest specifically, and also about the uh, designing games and how to go through the whole process in general. And Chris, you're going to take a break real quick. Do I do that now, or do you yeah. want to say anything first? Yeah, I'll, I'll slip out for a moment, and I'll be back in just a minute. Have fun. Okay, thanks. See you in a second. All right. So we're going to skip the very first part, where we're just talking about the details about the contest, dates and stuff, and we'll save that for Chris when he returns. So, do you guys want to talk about yourselves and what games you've designed and how you're involved with the contest? I see you first, Jake, so you could start. Um, okay. <laughs> I don't know what to say, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I've, uh, I've entered the last two years, um, and I kind of, I, I watched the two years, was it, before that? I think this is the, this is the fifth year, isn't it? Has it been around before? Yeah. Um... And yeah, it's it's one of those. <laughs> I find it fascinating, essentially, because solitaire is like the. On one hand, it's, it's obviously the sort of easiest type of game to, to play test because you don't need anyone else. But uh, at the same time, it's got it's got so many sort of unique constraints on it. There's so many things you just can't do because you don't have any other intelligences in the game. So I find it really fascinating from that point of view. Um, it's not sort of you know all that I do. As such, but uh, I quite enjoy doing um, sort of multiplayer stuff as well. But there's there's something really, really sort of yeah, fascinating, special about solitaire design in that respect. Okay, and what games did you design for the contest? Um, for for the solitaire contest, uh, Maki in 2013 and Facility in 2014. Okay, and Maki is the game we're going to review for this episode when it gets published next week. Actually, so everybody watching this is is going to hear it again in a week. And Todd? Uh, I'm Todd Sanders. Uh, some of you, many of you may know me from BGG. I do a lot of solo and two, three, four player games. I've been um, involved with the solo contest since its start. Uh won several years, and I usually play pretty well in artwork and fantasy category. Um, Shadows Upon Lassadar, that series started with, uh, I believe it was the 2011 Solo contest and uh, 2012, I won again with uh, one of the follow-up games, the Siege of Dalnish. Uh, last year, I did Seeker in the Forest of Weir, which I placed pretty well. Um, I'm also known on BGG for uh, helping out a lot with the PNP crafting 
side of things and uh, about how to cut things out and print stuff and get your stuff looking quality. Um, so that's me. Have you ever helped any professional designers get their games ready for publishing, like for submitting to the publisher? Uh, I do, yes. I actually work with Ludi Creations and Alban Viard, who does the talent, talent, Town Center and uh, Small City. Right now I'm doing all the box artwork for Small City, and I'll be doing another game with him. I do also maps for him for Age of Steam. I've done, I think this is on my eighth now I'm working on for him. And with Ludi Creations, I did uh, the graphic design for Redacted and uh, Pocket Imperium, which will be coming out soon. And they're going to be publishing a few of my own games. Oh, very cool. Well. Very cool, okay. So, mm-hmm. a lot of different stuff. Right, and Ryan. Hi, everyone. My name is Ryan Mays, and um, I designed the game Super Marche for last year's contest. That was actually my first game design and my first time entering the contest and my first time even really knowing about the contest. So it was your podcast last year mm-hmm. where you and Chris and Todd talked about the contest and I was like, hey, sounds fun. I should I should try something out. And That's a good thing you entered. Yeah, you did. Yeah. It. And my game won. And uh, uh-huh. <laughs> like, sometimes I still forget that. That happened, but yeah, that was that's my experience with the contest. It was great. That worked out very well, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think things just came together right for me. Yeah, right. So while we wait for Chris to return, do we want to talk about designing a game? How, how do you go about beginning that process? Um, do, do you want to mention Ryan? Like, since it was your first contest, how did you come up with an idea? Did it just fall in your lap, or did you work around for it? Sure. Um. I don't know, maybe it fell in my lap. Um, I, this was a Dice Tower podcast episode. I don't know, three, four, two, three years ago. I don't even remember. But Tom Vassell was saying how he was sick of probably trading in the Mediterranean games. He said, why doesn't someone make a grocery store game? And it just stuck in my head. And I'd just been kind of sitting on it for a while, letting it, I don't know, the idea just kind of, be there, and then last year when I thought about the contest, I was like, hey, let's do that. Um, I used to manage a grocery store, so kind of felt like I maybe understood the real-world mechanics of what goes into it, and I just kind of did it. Um, You asked about the process. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I noticed that was really surprising, since this was my first, is that I started out easy and added complexity their layers, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I often hear people say how they start out really complicated, and then they work their way back. They strip things away. And I did the opposite, like, kind of building it up until it felt right. Okay. Yeah. Was it hard to make things fit in? Well, I would also put in... Go on. I said I would also put in that one thing that Ryan, I think, was really successful was, is he started early enough that he built up a good following... And there was a lot of input from other people, and um, that's you know one of the I think keys to the the contest in many ways. And you know your game, I followed the the um, design of it the whole time, and it just kept you as you said, it get more complex and more rich right. as you went on. That you certainly you know, built up, and the iterations were I think really important for you going through those uh, sort of design studies. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I definitely. Um the amount of people that were co- working on the my work in progress thread really made it, made all the difference to kind of s- 
I mean, because there are so many people following it and giving me feedback, and even people giving me feedback who didn't even have interest in playing a solitaire game, which I, which I appreciated, um, mm-hmm. just really helped kind of move things forward. That's good. So yeah, having participation from people helps a lot. Mm-hmm. And if if you're not familiar with the theme already, like a supermarket, is it hard to to come up with a game design and mechanics for it? For this, you mean? Well, yeah, in general. Like I'm thinking of uh, Jake, for example. Your game, my key, is about a revolution, isn't it? Uh, guys, the French Resistance in the Second World War. Okay. So, were you familiar with the subject already, or, or did you just need to start learning about it? Uh, partly, I think it was it was obviously something that I I was aware of and knew about from a sort of you know broad historical interest point of view, um, and it was kind of a I'd started with just the idea of I, I really like worker placement games so I wanted to do a, a solitaire worker placement game and I was trying to think how that would work and it sort of started off with I'd, I'd try like a deck of cards which would take actions based on some condition and then it sort of at some point I realized that you know there had to be something else getting back to a, a safe space seemed to be a, a mechanic that really worked and from that it suddenly sort of clicked and thought you know saboteurs, resistance, whatever, something like that. And then the um, the theme sort of just fell into place, you know? I think it wasn't something that I started out thinking, I'll make a French resistance game. I think one of the really smart things with Jake is that he, he used the idea of worker placement, but so many worker placement games are about workers making something. They're sawing wood and digging up, mm-hmm. you know, stone or whatever. And Jake went beyond that, that there there's sort of these characters and there's this, you know, real narrative to his game, the story, and you get you know really involved with these people who are trying to um, fight the the Nazi occupation, and so it's a it's I think a really interesting game for that that it it uses a worker place mechanic, but it's not about workers making things in the Renaissance or workers making things on a desert island, well, unless the things are bombs. Yeah. Okay, so so it looks like uh, Jake, you started with the mechanics, and Ryan started with the theme, and you both in a way end up at the same place, which is a, a finished game. So so really, the, it's to start a, a design if you haven't done one before, is go with what feels best for you, what makes sense. But I think that it's still hard to find inspiration. I imagine it must be a little bit tricky. I'm finding it really hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm having a very big lack of inspiration for this year. <laughs> So, so if, if you have a, a, a starting place already, where do you go from there? Do you, how do you match the theme to the mechanic? Is it? I think Jake, you said you just started uh, playing, playing it, and trying just playing cards, and and then it just clicked for you, huh? Yeah, and to be honest, when I when I was first starting out with the um, the 2013 contest, I was thinking of uh, a sort of trading game. So you'd be, um, I don't know. Uh, a merchant family in a renaissance town or something like that. Something really, really typical. And you had to go out and grab the best goods before the, your opponent did. And it, yeah, I mean, it's, it was just a sort of, it seems to fit with what I'm playing around with at the time. Um, but yeah, it was just the, the shortcomings of that from a, a play perspective. It just wasn't really very fun. So <laughs> I realized I had to stick something else in there to, to make it an interesting game that actually, you know, provided some challenge without being either just ridiculously unfair or arbitrary. And, um, yeah, it was, 
when I got to the bit where it actually had some mechanics that were fun, then it also really sort of seemed to make sense as a as a you know, resistance of some sort. Okay, how about uh, I guess the next step is playtesting. Once you've started designing your game already, how what is that process like for you guys? For me, it was just I don't know, play until the pieces don't seem right. That are, are the the pieces that don't seem right are gone, and then to work for when I get agreement with other people who are playtesting it. Okay. I mean, when I first started out, the very first version of my game last year was like there was like a it was like 155 dice rolls in the game. There's like so many, and so I knew right away that that was wrong and. I worked on whittling that down until it just kind of... There's still, like, 45 in the game. Um, but it just... The the flow seemed better. But that was something It was, like... Across the board, I got agreement from people that, that that was too many. I don't know. It's just kind of... like Like Jake said earlier about Solitaire, it's like you're able to spend your time with yourself just seeing how it feels and experimenting. And because you can do it by yourself, I don't know, it gives an easy way for to just kind of work yeah. things out. Did you find, do you guys find playtesting your own game is hard at some point? How soon do you need somebody else to look at it? Uh, for me, it's always as soon as possible. I mean, once I get the basic technique down and uh, the game feels solid to me, then you can get it out to other people, and there's sort of two prongs. One of that, they're playing the game, but also they're reading your rules. And the rules, a lot of times, are what's going to make or break what you're doing, because people are either going to understand it or not. So the sooner you can get it out for the people to test, the better and more solid all that work is going to become. You know, and people also have interesting spins on things that they can add to um, the games, too. So... You know, if you have a game that uses a lot of dice, you may find that there's somebody out there who's really interested in probability, and then they can say, well, I'm going to write this little computer program, and then I can, I'll play a thousand of your games in five seconds, and I can tell you what your dice ranges need to be. And so that kind of collaborative process, the more that you can get that out there sooner as possible, the better. Yeah, that's right, because you get, you get input from a lot of different type of people. That makes sense. Yes. And somebody might enjoy reading the rules and just helping you clean them up or whatever, and somebody might want to try and break your game or... Whatever, all that input is different, and it's all good, isn't it? Right. Like, like there's one guy in this year's contest who was going to use dice, and he was worried that people wouldn't make dice. And so he was not going to do the dice. And I and a few other people got and said, well, no, we make dice all the time. You know, don't let, you, don't let that stop you. Don't pre-edit yourself because you think somebody's not going to play something. I mean, it's it's a bit of a difference if you've got a 100-page rule book and 200 pages of text and 300 cards you got to print up to play your game. But... Don't let the components stop you because there's we're a bunch of really creative people and there's always going to be somebody who knows how to do something. So when you said make dice, you meant like custom faces on the dice? Yeah, he was worried that he was worried that if he had custom stickers on the dice, that people wouldn't make the dice for the game. Mm-hmm. Okay. Even if nothing else, you could just use a lookup table or something for that kind of thing. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I've done sometimes. If, if I just don't feel like printing out the dice because I don't think I'm going to play the game much, right. I'll just do a lookup table. And the main point is don't pre-edit yourself. Don't, you know, do whatever you want to do and whatever feels right, and then as it's released, you'll find your way mm-hmm. through the rest of it. Make the game that works, and then yeah, 
if you can trim it down to be more functional later, then by all means have a go. But right, right. the game being fun is the important part. Okay. So when is this design process done? <laughs> is it like the day after the deadline? Uh, well, for me, it's. I mean, there's stages. There's the deadline is you have to have the game workable by then, but you're going to find afterwards that you're going to come back fresh from it. I usually take a couple weeks after the contest and not look at the game and come back. And then I can see, well, this needs to be adjusted a little more and this needs to work this way a little more. And, you know, you find things still... I, I get posts two and three years later after doing a game that somebody's figured out something that makes the game better and then I'll go back and add to that design. So it's, it's in part a never-ending process, but there's sort of stages of rest. Yeah, okay. I suppose you could say. Hey, Chris, you're back and you've been awful quiet. Should we go ahead and talk about the uh, the details about the contest, like... The, the dates and all that sort of stuff? Ooh, segue. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, sorry to, to have to leave for a minute there, but um, appreciate you having having me on, having all of us on, Albert. Um, so the, the dates for this year, uh, contest, uh, the entry deadline, which uh, Todd was just talking about, is August 2nd this year. Um, so we're, we're trying out something new. I've always had sort of a, a, a shorter time between the start of the contest and the entry deadline and i th- i think there was a there, there sometimes there was confusion about when the contest would start because i would say well if the game was started this year you can go ahead and enter it and then other people weren't starting until the contest you know the thread actually went live so this year i actually created the thread on january 1st so you know any any game can be entered into contest starting now going through August. So it's a much longer entry period, uh, which is kind of cool. There, there's already uh, 30, 35 entries, I think. Uh, so people are able to get feedback a lot earlier and do play testing a lot earlier. Um, and, you know, the, the downside is we're also overlapping with some other contests right now. I think that the two-player contest is going on right now. But, um, you know, we're, we're trying this out and seeing how it works and Maybe next year we'll do the same thing, or or we'll we'll go back to the shorter time frame, depending on the feedback we get. But but yeah, that that's the entry deadline right now. And then after that, you have uh, six weeks to vote. Uh, so that the voting deadline is September thirteenth. And um, I should also mention we we have a week grace period after the entry deadline. Uh, I think two thousand thirteen. Jake, this was yes. <laughs> this came up. I remember there were some typos found in, in Jake's game and several others. I, I shouldn't single out Jake here, but it, I think there's nothing more embarrassing than saying, "Okay, here's the entry deadline," and you know, to keep things fair, I, I would lock it down. So you can't make any changes to your games. You can't make new components. You can't edit the rules. So if you find some typo that's silly, you know, that can be so frustrating. So I did allow a week where. You know, you can't add new components or make new games, but you can go in and fix typos and make little clarifications and stuff. And I think a lot of people took advantage of that last year. So we're doing that again this year. So the entry deadline is the August 2nd and then August 9th to uh, get your final version in. Okay, And then the voting begins immediately and runs for six weeks, you said? Yeah. Uh, well, well I... The, the voting period or the play testing period is six weeks. I don't usually put up the voting form until the last week of the contest. Uh, I, don't, I don't put it up that first day because, uh, you know, I want people to go out and play some games and, and play as many as they can. Like, I know that no one is ever going to be able to play all of them. I have 
you know, I've tried and made a valiant effort, and I've never done it. So it's getting harder every uh, year, and, and it gets bigger every year. So, yep. um, but I, I do want to leave a nice time to play as many of the games that look interesting to you as you can. I don't want to have people run out of time for the games they really want to play. But um, about a week before the voting deadline, I'll put up a, a, a voting page for people. Okay. I think for Chris, also one of your important changes this year is that you're allowed one large format and one small format game. You're not allowed to have three, four, five. So you have one one game that's like maybe five pages and under, and then you have one large format which can be as big as you 10, want, yeah, twelve pages, right? Yeah, and I, there's a few people taking advantage of it. There's some really cool games. Uh, Todd uh, is has two games in the contest this year. Um, King Spud Joe. Uh, he has two mm-hmm. games that are already looking pretty complete right now in the contest. So yeah. um, if I ever finish my large format game, I've got some small <laughs> format ones bouncing around my head too. So I think it's kind of cool. But there was one year where I said, as many games as you want. And there were a few designers, you know, they, they came up with some really creative stuff, but they were entering four or five games. Um, and it was just it was so overwhelming. I thought there, there's no way that anyone can ever play all of these. So I just wanted to dial it back just to keep the number of entries a little bit more manageable. So when you said small format, it's five pages. That's in, the rules and all the components added together. Uh, just the components. Mm-hmm. If you have a small format game and the rule book is 20 pages long, that's, that's fine for the, for the contest. I see Jake having a 20-page rulebook idea over there. <laughs> a few more than 20, actually. I have one idea for this year's contest, and it's a, um, a sort of paragraph-style thing, so it wouldn't need very many components. But yeah, the rulebook might be quite large. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said I tried the paragraph style last year and soon gave up. It was just, it's just too, too, much, too much to do in the time. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm afraid of. Yeah, that's got to be overwhelming to, to do a game like that. Like, um, I'm thinking of Ambush... With the, I guess it's got a few hundred paragraphs. I never set that on count. Maybe a thousand. Mm-hmm. But, but all the different paths I could take is just overwhelming. Yeah, and there's there's several free solitaire print and play games uh, that use the paragraph system. The Sherlock Holmes detective game uses the paragraph system. Barbarian Prince, which is originally a published game, but is now free print and play. And, and Todd actually did a graphic update for that. That uses the paragraph system. We've had a few entered in the contest, uh, and I think several of them have been started, and then, you know, it, it's an awfully lot of work to do. So um, I, I'd, I'd love to do something like that sometime, yeah. too. But <laughs> There is actually, if for people who want to try that style, there are some apps out there you can download for Mac and PC for doing choose-your-adventure books, and they will actually will trace the um, decision trees through the game, and you can actually then take that text out of the out of the app and use it in, you know, standard text. Uh, so it's a good way to sort of trace your, your dead ends and your your uh, narrative threads. That's very neat. Okay. But, uh, by the way, quick interruption here. We I think if I set it up right, there's a question and answer sort of thing. If somebody has a question, they could post it. I think the way you get to it on the left, there's at least on my computer, is a, a Q&A button. And if you click it, it turns on the question section on the right. And you could post questions. Now, maybe I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe I'm just lying, and there is no way to ask questions. If not, I'm sorry. I'd say let me know, but you can't. So, so there we go. So, okay. A- after that quick commercial break there, um, 
What other qualifications are there to enter? You already mentioned, I think, you could have two games or size limits. Um, there's the the date limits, and you said the game could not be entered before January 1st, but could I be working on my game for the last five years and enter it? Yeah, I, and let, let, yeah to clarify that, that's a great question. Um, the game that I am working on this year, I've been working on for two years. Um, the, the limitation I have is... When you posted the components online for people to play test and get feedback from your play testers, you know, especially if you've made it publicly available for anyone to download and play, I say, you know, if, if you've done that two years ago, I don't want the game to be entered in the contest this year, just to keep it fair so that everyone's getting about the same amount of public feedback on their games. So that, that's the limitation there. But obviously, if you've been working on your game for five years, Privately, that's fine. Okay, okay. And then we've also got there's different categories that you could enter in, correct? Other than the size, there's themes and things like that. There are. We, we've we've made uh, about ten special categories this year. Um, we have categories for small games. The the micro game uh, style that's very popular right now has its own category. Uh, we also have a very large format uh, game category. And the reason I set these up is I, I think that games are going to get played more the easier they are to construct. They'll probably draw a bigger audience and get more people voting on them. But if you have a game that has 40 pages of components and it's a really great game, it might be overlooked by some of the voters just because it's so big. But it has its own special category. So even though you're probably a little less likely to win the grand prize, you can still win this other size category. Mm-hmm. Then we've got a few other categories for best thematic game, a few mechanics. We have a best paragraph system, as we talked about, and and all of those categories are on the contest entry thread, so that people can know what's available and what they can enter. And just to say, we did get a question, Albert. Can we let you know it is working by asking a question? I think the answer is yes. Yes. So, so <laughs> go ahead and ask that. questions. Yep. That was, and that was from John Middleton. Thank you. Yeah. You can also, um, <laughs> if you want, Twitter post me at at, at Lack River. L-A-C-K-R-A-V-E-R, and I can, uh, I've got two screens going here, so I can field questions from other, uh, sources as well. Um, uh, so I want to ask about the categories also. Um, it's, for me, it's a little confusing. If I enter a game, I pick a category up front. I remember last year people would nominate games for a category. Uh, is that optional? Yeah, I, I, I've just opened it up for you to say this is the category I'd like to enter. Um, but I, I will always look at the games. Uh, a few people have done it and a few people have not. So I always go through the games and say, this looks like a, a war game or this looks like a, a medium-sized game. And, and then I'll post everything maybe a week before the voting time period just so people can say, my game, I'd rather have it here. This game is more of a, uh, you know, a different style of game. So, uh, so it's still kind of, I, I've just left it open for people to suggest where they want their games to be, which is probably where they'll end up, but it'll probably still go through a little community conversation before it's finalized. Okay. And the point of the category is to give you more chances to win. Yeah, it's just additional basically. places that you can win uh, win the contest. Okay. I think it also helps because, I mean, people are attracted to certain things. For the people who like zombie games, it's an easy way for them to say, okay, in this contest I can see these games, so I'll help out over here, I'll try to play test these you know, a lot of times the title, you're not sure what a game is about. Um, so it's just a good way to cross-reference things. That's right. And there's a, a list of all the games 
that you have got going? Is that a geek list? Well, the current entries. Uh, uh, there's a, a post on the contest thread that has all the current entries. Um, so that that's where you can find all of the games in the contest. It's the second post on the contest thread. Okay, and th- and that has the game title and a, a brief description mm-hmm. and a link to I- a thread where you can get all the components and stuff. I like I like the descriptions because I think that makes it a lot of fun just to to browse and see what's out there. Yeah, there's some really good flavor text on those games. <laughs> I think that's that's a lot of the fun for, it, for of it for me. Um, and so, how do I submit a game now if I want to enter the contest? Okay, so I, I have instructions on the entry thread uh, or on the contest thread. Uh, basically, what it is is you would go to the game design forum on Board Game Geek, and I have links to that on the contest thread. You create a new thread. And there's a few things you have to have on it, a, a brief description of your game, a photograph of your game, brief description of the components, uh, and then links to the components as soon as they're ready. And then just let me know that it's uh, available to be entered into the contest, either geek mail me directly or post to the contest thread so that everyone can see it. And then I will add it to the entry list uh, so that it's easy to keep track of. And uh, that's all there is to it. It's uh, open to anybody. Okay. And you said a picture of the game? Yeah, and that can be um, a a picture of an actual build that you've made. If you have cut out the components, you can take a photograph of them. Or if you're still kind of in the design phase, you can create a picture on the computer. Um, And It's just so that people can get a little view of what the game looks like before they decide if they want to build it or not. Ah, Okay, I get it. So you may not actually have that ready right away. Yeah. I imagine you might want to enter and it's not quite ready. Yeah, it's just due by the time the voting stage is coming up. So if, if, if you want to enter a game that's just an idea in your head, that's fine. You can just create the thread and add the picture when it's ready. Okay. Uh, okay. So so let's say I've been working on my game and now and I, now that I, we've talked for a little while, I'm realizing I mislabeled my notes here. I call this finishing touches. And I bet you a lot of this you really want to be working on from the very beginning. Like Todd already mentioned, the rules, for example. You don't want to save that for the end. Or, or, or well-written, organized rules, at least. Yeah, I always think um, they should grow organically with the game. You've got to get down how to explain other people how to play the game, I think, as soon as you can. Because if it's up just in your head, it's not going to do anybody any good. So I guess early on, the first thing you do is you start taking notes... This is what I'm imagining. I don't know what people actually do, but I would, I guess I would start taking notes about different rules and I'd probably write them as a list of, you gotta do it this way and this happens that way and it's just very, very utilitarian just for my own use. And then, is that what you guys did? Yeah, I, let, let me jump in. I, I, I entered a game into a, a different contest. It was a 18 card micro game contest. And the the rules that I had were kind of on posty notes and scraps of paper from my desk. Uh, and I got the game kind of working to where I was ready to share it with people. And the rules were the very last thing that I wrote. And so as a, you know, making a newbie mistake, let me share. <laughs> That's not, I don't recommend that. I, I got back a lot of comments from people going, well, how does, what happens in situation like this or, or what happens here? And I thought, well, it was very clear in my head, but as Todd said, if I had been growing it organically and sharing it with people ahead of time, I would have answered those questions before putting the game out to everybody. That's actually the why your WIP thread, your work in progress thread, is important too. Because if you start talking about your game and posting things about it, you're already writing text. 
you can come back then to those posts, copy that text out, and then you've got the start of your rules. So you're, you're ahead of the game. So the more you explain in your posts, the more you can pull back out to use when you're doing the actual rule writing. Hey, we've got a question from uh, Stefan Termen. Uh, hi, where is a good place to start if I want to get into solitaire PMP games? Is there a good introduction to read anywhere? Um, now I'm not clear if this is in referring to, to making or playing games. Or if he's talking about making, games. I would actually say whoever the winners are of each of the solitaire contests, find the WIP threads for those games and see how those people talk to the people and how their progress went. Okay. And so probably a link to last year's uh, contest thread which yeah. then take it to the different game entries. I think Chris is good about that. He always adds a linked form threads once the games are in the database, I believe, that then links it back to... Yeah, I, I try to keep that updated. That's right. And your your thread for this year has links to previous years and everything, too, so... Mm-hmm. If you fu- Best place to start is this yeah, year. Yeah, in the first post, I have a, a, a section called links, and there's uh, links to all of the previous contests, so you can go back and look at all of the winners, uh, almost all of whom are joining us in the conversation today. <laughs> okay, and if if the question is in reference to, to printing out games, what's a good introduction for that? Um... I think there's a few different geek lists out there about solitaire games. Yeah, there's the PNP Guild that every month we post the games we're working on and uh, offer advice and techniques. There's the one-player solo gamers guild as well that um, is a good place to find. Um, I've got my own forum thread uh, that I post a lot of tips and techniques and questions in. Um Jake is all. Jake is usually all over the place. I, I see him in a lot of different forum threads too. So he's a good. Things that he follows are probably things that you should follow as well. I think there's there's also the the one just from the point of view of making stuff. There's the the one thread in the do it yourself forum, which isn't under game design at all. Which is I think the a sticky all the DIY links you're ever going to need, and that covers pretty much anything you will ever need to know about making PMP games. Yeah, we have things like Nick uh, Hayes's how to make yeah. cards correctly and um, boxes, you know, making corner, boards. Uh, using the round arch punches, how that all works. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think that th- none of this is actually really set in stone. I think people have found ways that worked really well and make the process real easy and look nice. But I think all the time there's people coming up with new techniques that have worked out for them that are they're really nice. Yeah, I mean, I know Jake. Like Jake, I think when you make cards, you do the taping where you'll take the two sheets tape them on one end and put them together so you know your alignments are correct. Yeah. Um, I always do crop marks on all of my cards so you can actually uh, align the pages. If you can see through the pages, you can align the two pages together. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of different techniques for getting it getting straight. I, I have like a fold line between the two usually. I, I've usually tried the same sort of thing where I, where I crop it to a specific size and then glue the edges in a box. I stick it in a box and I, I lined it with the edge of the box. That sort of works also. I've also heard people Use a hole puncher and punch holes in the two papers and then line up the holes. So, yeah, there are a lot of techniques. The one thing that does not work is to do a two-page print on your laser printer or your inkjet printer because when it feeds the paper back in and do the page two, it's not going to feed it back in at the same rate, and so you're going to get a stagger. Um, The simplest way to do it is just do single-sided cards, put them in sleeves with a magic card in there as a backer, and the cards are solid. I don't know if it works with every printer, but one time I I had a printer that – I would feed in the cards and print them out, and it'd be great. And then I'd flip the paper over, rotate it uh, 90 de- 180 degrees, and then print the next page upside down. Because I found that it was always aligning on the left edge the same, but it wasn't being aligned. It wasn't centered. 
And that actually did a great job. So that might be something worth trying. And then, of course, beyond all that, we have Printer Studio, we have Arts Cal. There are ways to get to people's uh, stores to buy decks of cards. There's a couple of different uh, geek threads that share um, Printer Studio card sets. So if you have no talent whatsoever and you just want to play for pay for also, professionally done cards, you can get them printed up. Sorry to interrupt you, Todd. There, there, there's that. also a gentleman on Board Game Geek, Andrew Tolson, okay. I think is his last name. He he uh, builds print and play games. Yeah, Tolson. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. For a, a reasonable price, and then actually will yeah. contribute some of that money to the designer of the game. Uh, so that that's another cool way to do it too. If you if you don't want to build it yourself. Yeah, yeah. He's in Tolson of Print and Play Productions. That's right. I didn't know he donated some of the money back to the designer. That's really nice. Okay. Um. Let's see. Where are we at? So so we talked about the rules. The we. We've touched on the art a little bit, um, and I guess art is a very subjective thing, of course. So the, probably the first thing is, is is it figuring out what style you have, or do you have that in your mind as you're designing the game already? Brian, what are you thinking? <laughs> um, I'm sorry, I was laughing at my art. Um, I'm in no way an artist or a graphic designer, and I, yeah, I can use Photoshop and whatnot on the computer, but... I feel like my skill is rudimentary, so I decided that I was going to make my whole art design look like it was hand-drawn, because I did. I mean, I just I drew it and then scanned it into the computer. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it, I like how it came out because it was uniformly um, the same style, but I don't know, I look at it and go, hey, look, my drawing, it's on that print on that piece of paper. Um, but I think it's really nice because you can do whatever you want. So like the 11 C's for one, the art is awesome on that game. That was in last year's contest. And Todd's art is always awesome. And I mean, there's so many great looking choices, but for me, I just drew it on graph paper with a ruler and a special and the same pin. So that way it all looked the same when it, when it was in the computer. And I think that if you feel like, I guess what I'm trying to say is if you feel like you don't have great art, um, you're not, you're not a great artist. Don't worry about it. Just yeah, do what you yeah, want. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other, you know, I've always make the point every year that if you have a game that I like and the artwork's not so great, I'll probably go and redesign the artwork because I like the game. You know, we had Jake did an amazing map, for, for Maquis of the town. And he actually did really beautiful artwork for that. But then I was Ilium or Karim. Ilya or Karim, one of the two came along and redid the design, the, the artwork. And it was Ilya. Really, another gorgeous version of it. You know, there's also, there's Wikipedia out there. There's Wiki images. All those things are public domain that you can find stuff on. The um, National Gallery of Art, the Smithsonian, they have free collections as well. There are a couple other websites that collect things that are all public domain art. Uh, so if you can't find anything at all, you know, if you can't draw anything all yourself, then there are places to find it. And there's also Jeremy Pete usually uh, teams up with somebody every year and does artwork for a game. So Daniel Issam did um, Wicked Pizza, and Jeremy did all the artwork for that. So, you know, don't be afraid to ask those of us who do artwork well to say, hey, I need some help. Can you give me some sources, or can you help me out? I'd mention also, I think Ryan said that uh, 
he he looked at his game and thought, ah, oh, that's that's my drawings. But you know, that's that's pretty much every artist ever as well. So it's 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 nothing nothing that nobody else goes through. Um, and to be honest, I actually quite like the way Supermarché works in the it looks in the end. That's good to know. Thanks. Um, and I was going to point out that we always have several games in the contest. Uh, that have no artwork at all. It's just text on cards. I'm thinking of a few entries by like Nate Kurth in the previous years. Right. Foothold Enterprise had no art at all, but I played that game quite a bit. It was just text on cards and uh, his 10th dragon I've played a few times mm-hmm. with no artwork. Uh, my games that I have worked on, I've let my five-year-old daughter draw pictures and scan them into the computer. As, uh, as Ryan mentioned, uh, it's scanning in your artwork, you know, crayon drawings. And I actually got some very good feedback. People thought it worked very well with the game, this uh, childlike artwork, uh, which was kind of fun to get. So I there there is a category in the contest for best art, uh, which, you know, it's, it's very exciting to see some of the beautiful artwork that people are creating for these games, but don't feel intimidated at all. There, there's a lot of games with no art or very little art that still get a lot of people playing and mm-hmm. still get a lot of votes in the contest. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, when do you start working on the art for the game? Is that early on, or, or are you doing that at the very end, or what? I did it right from the beginning, um, because since in Supermarché you're running a grocery store, I really needed it to look, or at least I felt like I really needed it to look like a grocery store, because otherwise you were just moving cubes back and forth between two pieces of paper. And I think Pretty this is... Pretty much game What's that? It's pretty much every Euro game ever. <laughs> right. Moving cues back and forth. Yeah. And many games do that, but I needed people to see that they're moving it from the the freezers, like the freezer case in the back room to the freezer case in the front room. Like if maybe if you had that image, you would it would help you help the player understand why they're doing why they're just moving this cue back and forth. But I think it's a case of what works for you because I'm sure that some this this worked for me in this case, and I'm sure that there are plenty of other examples. And I'm sure we'll hear somewhere mm-hmm. the art only needed to come after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I can see what you're saying though. The it, it depends, I guess, how you're integrating the art into the game itself, but it may help the person visualize what's going on. Right. Uh, the, your play testers. Yeah, for me, my game, my long format game this year, the Court of Yang Chi, the art action drove the mechanics, I found these um, Chinese opera drawings from the 1600s, and there were they were sort of in groups of six, and 54 cards divided into six, nine, so the math kind of works out nicely there, and the groupings worked out, so the whole game actually was driven from this artwork. Oh, and okay. the, the uh, different groups of artwork then suggested to me different types of characters, so there's a courtesan, there's generals, there's tax collectors, there's demons, and so it all kind of snowballed from that collection of artwork I'd found. And I actually, I, I'll go and collect, when I find it, I'll go and collect lumps of artwork from public domain sources just to have them if I need them in the future. I've got all these Viking illustrations, I've got Hans Christian Andersen illustrations, um, the 18 card contest, The Maiden in the Forest, that was a illustration from a public domain Hans Christian Andersen book that I really liked the, the look of the girl, and she looked like a maiden, she looked like she had some magical powers, so that whole game was driven from that one image. Oh, wow, okay. So are you are you finding the art and you're saving the art on your computer, or are you just saving links to it? 
Uh, both. Now I'm saving the actual artwork because the links die yeah, mm. over time, so I download everything. I've got a huge folder of stuff. Wow. And I'm also, like, if I'm watching a science fiction movie, I'll take screen captures on Netflix of um, mountains or, you know, space um, fields and different things because I can use them for other things. Uh, I did a game for 24-hour contest, and the image I used to that is actually from a, um, a Viking movie. And it's just the mountains and some mountains in Norway, and I just like the way the mountains look. So I did a quick screen capture and just kept that around. Wow. Okay. So really, you know, look around everywhere for art sources. Yeah. Yeah. And there are there are a lot of actually stock photo sites as well that are free because people are trying to build up their photo cache of their, their portfolios. So you can actually find free stock photo sites. So if you're doing a game about Holland, you need pictures of windmills find a free stock photo site and there's pictures of windmills there that you can use because you're not going to make any money off this game yourself. You're not selling copies of it. So there's various creative commons licenses that you can use, um, depending on what they are that allow you to use for free. Um, same thing with fonts. There's DA font and several other sites that you can download things. And actually fonts, I find a lot of artwork, my journey in journey in the underworld, all the artwork from that came from a font that somebody had done all these pictures of various, uh, Greek soldiers and, Greek mythological figures. As a font. Oh wow, cool! So I like fonts. I like messing yeah. with them. And all the art you're saying is public domain or, or free one way. I think I think people do want to generally avoid using stuff that they don't have permission to use. Yeah, that's not good. That's not a good idea. Okay, so other other things I have for finishing touches is Vassal. It's not a requirement, but. But if you have a Vassal module for your game, more people are likely to play it, I guess. Right? And not everybody knows what Vassal is, so does somebody want to talk about it? Because I haven't really used it much in years. Yeah, Vassal is a uh, it's a computer program that basically allows you to set up a board game in this application. Uh, you can program in the pieces. Uh, if they're double-sided, you can flip the pieces over or have a deck of cards in there. Basically, it just replicates a tabletop environment, so you can't put in rules or have it do things for you or simulate an opponent, uh, but you can create uh, basically a virtual tabletop. Yeah. It will do dice rolls as well and um, some simple counting yeah, issues. Card shuffling. Yeah. So, so for a multiplayer game, you could actually connect over the network with people, but for a solitaire game, you would just need to, you know, plug it in and, and load up the game, and then you can play it on the computer without having to uh, print the components and cut them up. Basically, it would save you the ink and save you the time to assemble the game. Yes. And there are now for um, iPads, there's Card Warden, which allows you to upload card images. And basically play, you know, card games, Dominion style games where you're shuffling cards, dealing cards, picking up cards. Um, so that's an option as well. So if you make your artwork available, people can play Card Warden. There's another BGGer who's starting to do his own version of Vassal, which is a little bit, um, nicer looking and it's a smoother interface. I think his name's Frank. I'm not sure what his, um, BGG username is, but I've got a couple games on his system for that. That's another, uh, outlet for it. Okay, and I seem to remember there's a different program other than Vassal, but I can't remember what the name is. Uh, is that Sun Tzu? What's that? Yeah, there's Sun Shu. Mm, no, but I remember what it was. I remember playing Here I Stand on it with with people in different areas, um, play by email. The, well, so, but you said Vassal does not have, um, you, you can't put the rules in it, but you can't uh, do some things like 
you only allow some counters to go to certain areas on the board, or if you flip a counter, it triggers other effects. Can you can you put that much complexity into it at all? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff you can program in. It's just quite... <laughs> it's a pain to actually make it do the things you want it to do a lot of the time. Yeah. So I have a massive respect for... Uh, is it Chad Mestal? Yes. Who, um... Yeah, for a few years he was doing that for, for people. Must have programmed about a million Vassal games. Um, <laughs> and I mean, saying this as a software engineer, I found Vassal a massive pain to actually make anything work in. I did uh, two games in it. One of them was Mackie and the other was uh, Deepwell Manor. And it's it's work. Yeah. <laughs> anyone who can do anyone who can do more than a couple of Vassal modules is is worthy of respect. Okay, and Vassal modules are not a requirement. They're, they're entirely no, optional. not at all. They're they're not a requirement to enter. They're they're optional. Um, and as somebody mentioned, we had a uh, Chad Masta in the past volunteered his time to create Vassal modules for. Uh, many, many of the games that have been entered in the past years. And this year I believe he's uh he, he isn't participating. I think he's taking a little break from BGG to focus on some other things. So uh I, I haven't seen as many Vassal modules entered this year because honestly probably ninety percent of the ones that have been done in the past came from him. I mean it, it was just amazing that he wow. volunteered so much time to do that. Wow, okay. And and so okay so vessels not required but actual printable components are required. Yes, yeah, you you do have to be able to uh, print out the game, and, and we we have had games where all it is is a rule book and a standard deck of cards, um, and that that's fine, you know. Uh, yeah. So I, I, people have done ones with tarot cards as well. Yeah. When I say printable components, uh, I, you know, if, if your game doesn't actually have any components, that's still okay. <laughs> I think some of the some of the main things to know is. We have both American and U.S. or U.S. and European paper sizes, and actually a letter-sized piece of paper will fit an A4 size for European paper. So if you're gonna, if you want to game the system a little bit and get people to play your games, you know, don't do some kind of map that needs to have a 24 by 36 <laughs> sheet printed. Stick to sizes that people can print at home. Stick to nine cards to a page. Um, which makes it a lot easier for people to print things up and cut them out. Um, we all have cubes and dice and chips and stuff around, so don't be afraid about those components. There's, you know, penny nickels, dimes for things as well. Don't let any of that stop you, but try to put yourself in the shoes of the people printing these things up. And if you've got all kinds of strange requirements, then your game probably may not be printed. Okay, and and if you do have a big map, make sure it fits. You do it in multiple segments, right? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. There are there are PDF things out there that will split your PDF down into printable segments. I'd also suggest doing a uh, a line art version. Yeah, I I believe I've actually set a requirement this year that the game has to be printable on A4 or letter paper, uh, and you know if you have a map sheet that's you know four pages, that's fine. You just have to be able to provide it on paper that people can print. Uh, I, I think we had some games entered years ago that, you know, would have a, a very large map and you were, you, I guess the, the person would have to go through and edit the image themselves or print it tile format. So I did put a requirement this year that it has to print on letter paper just to make it easier for people making the games. Um, so we've talked about the art, the rules, Vassal. So the last thing I guess is 
submitting it to BGG. Um, I know that's optional, and some people haven't done that. Is there any reason not to submit it as a game entry to BGG? Uh, I would say the only caveat there is make sure your game's done. There, are, there are so many sort of dead, dead game entries out there. You know, don't post the game until you're happy with it, that it's in a done stage, and I think really until the contest is over. Um, there's just nothing worse than going to somebody's listing and say, oh, well, this game's still been in development for three years, and here's four photos and nothing else. <laughs> you know, that just kind of clogs up the system. Uh, BGG has some special rules about when you can add print-and-play games to the database. Uh, I've reposted those on the contest thread. Um just for reference for people. Um, and I, I also think that in a contest, you know, your game might be going through changes every, every month or, or, or not every month, you know, maybe every day you're releasing a new change or fixing a card or the rules. And people expect that when you print out the game, I don't think anyone's thinking right now, this is the final version. I, um, you know, you might have to reprint it a few times and that's okay because it's a contest. But once you've made a, an entry on Board Game Geek, if you're changing the files all the time. I think mm-hmm. it's going to irritate people because you're dealing with yeah. a different audience that's looking for a complete game. I, I, you mentioned that you, people are going to go in and they're going to know that the the games are not complete. They're not, that you might have to reprint but I, I don't think that's true. I think some people go in, especially if they're new to the contest, they don't realize that this is a work in progress. And and they're going to print out the game and, and spend all the time on these playtest components and play it, and then a week later or a couple days later, there's an update. And I got to print out more sheets. And that's actually one reason why uh, I think also Chris instituted naming your WIP threads correctly, that there's sort of a level of this is game development, this is just game thinking about it, this is now a play-testable game. And so really naming things and being upfront with people, you know, when you when you post your links to your um, files in your first post, if you do that, I always put a version number, which is actually the date I did that version at, so people can tell whether this is a new version or old version, whether I have the right components or not. Um, but being clear and upfront about what your stage development is can help solve those those kind of issues. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, as Todd mentioned, I, I instituted a uh, naming your thread. You have the game title, and then you would have a playtesting stage or development stage. There's also a complete stage, and once you've put your game in that, the contest rules basically say you can't change it after that just for the sake of the people who are printing the game. So I kind of don't recommend people put their game into that until they're really sure about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's something good to know. I have a, a question uh, from T. Manko. Is the alternative to Vassal that was mentioned Tabletop Sim? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Um, there is another one called Zunsu. That's not the one I was thinking of. Um, I don't remember what I was thinking of at all. Yeah. So it's also Cyberboard, I think. Cyberboard, that was it. Yes. Okay. That's what I was using. I remember that one too. I find that one very hard to use, but that's just yeah. my opinion. <laughs> I don't remember. I remember one of the two I used was hard to use, and the other one was easier. And I seem to remember Vassal was Java based, and I didn't. And I found it frustrating. That's neither here or there. I think really the Vassal is very much a standard these days, and that's probably the best thing to go with, just because more people are going to have it. I think my experience with Vassal has been that it's been fine mm-hmm. from the player's perspective. Once you've got the module all made, then it's actually is perfectly nice to use. Okay. Um. Let's see, we've been at this for about an hour. Hopefully, everybody's okay. 
Um, if anybody wants to drop or needs to drop for whatever reason, just please go for it. But uh, otherwise, I want to jump into printing and playing games. We've been touching on this already a lot. Are, are there any suggestions for, for folks, especially folks who might be new to this? And I think the most useful idea I've heard so far is probably to go check the uh, the Print and Play Guild's geek list yeah. to see what people are, <clears throat> excuse me what people are printing and how they do it and what techniques they use. Say, so get yourself a good uh, ruler. There's some nice ones out there that are plastic with a metal edge, so you can cut along the metal edge but see through what you're cutting. Uh, definitely use an exacto blade. Change it early. Change it often. Um, you always want to protect what you're cutting, so the edge you're cutting against should always be the waste edge. So if you mess up and your thing slips, you're going to slip off into the, the border zone rather than the cut zone. Um, there are plenty of places to find chipboard and various other kinds of board that we use for the boards for games, one of which I always like to say is find somebody who's throwing a bunch of three-ring binders and mm-hmm. pull the vinyl off the binder ends, and you've got some really nice chipboard there. Um, but I know Walmart sells it. There's various art stores that sell it. If you've got a college nearby that's got an art department, they're going to have an art store. You're going to be able to find materials there. Um, don't use Elmer. Don't use Elmer's glue for things. Uh, Super seventy seven is the the glue of choice. Um, note that if you're spray gluing something on one side, it's going to curl because it's not even on the other side. So if you're spray gluing, you should really spray glue things on both sides, and that will even out the uh, the tension um, when the thing shrinks or enlarges. Okay, so glue both. Both backs of the two sheets, and then yeah, yeah. push them together carefully. I've had that problem where things a couple years later, I'm coming and finding right. counters or peeling and things like that. It's basically useless. And know that Super Seventy Seven gets everywhere, and I've actually figured out that the best way to do it is put down a couple sheets of newspaper, and then put a couple of wood blocks on top of that, and then you put your piece of paper on top of that, so the piece of paper actually hovers. So as you spray each sheet to do what you need to do, you're not dragging the sheet through the glue that's on the the newspaper. As long as you keep stuff elevated, you can quickly spray through a whole bunch of things and gloom up. I think that was probably the, the most useful tip I got last year, actually. Um, <laughs> so thanks for that. One time at a thrift store, I found a, a 3M sheet, or it was a pack of sheets of um, adhesive. I don't remember what it's called exactly. I'll probably dig it up and find it. But it you basically use it to stick two sheets together. So you peel off one side of the paper... Glue it, glue the the image on, then peel off the other side. And- well, if you if you're going to do that, it's it's better, I think, to actually buy full sheet sticker paper. You can buy at at like uh, Office Depot and Office Max. You can buy full sheet um, mailing label paper, which is eight and a half by eleven, and that's already got the stuff stuck on it. So you run that through your laser printer, your inkjet printer, peel it off, and stick it. That's great for things like if you're going to do Jake's uh, Maquis my, my game because he's got it all sized. The board is one sheet of paper, so. Run through your printer, stick it on a whatever you want to stick it on, and you're ready to go. I'd add that the uh, the distinction for me is label paper is really good for things which are quite large, but if you're going to be cutting them out, mm-hmm. then the because the the glue on label paper never dries, it will get all the way over the edge of your knife or whatever. I use a rotary cutter, so it just gunks up all the time. So I would definitely right. use uh, spray glue by preference for things which are going to okay. be have lots have lots of cuts through them. I don't know. The, this is my tip for the new printed player. Is last year I pretty much had never made a print and play game, and I think the best thing to do is don't stress about how perfect it is when you make it. Like the more games you make, the better you're going to get at it. You're going to learn little tricks. You'll read about tricks like the ones we've been saying. But if you really want, if you have a game you really love, then you can 
go back and make a really awesome version. But just make it the best way you can. Make it; it'll be playable, and you can have fun. I mean, the game's about playing and having fun with it. But I mean, I fight with myself because I want it to be perfect, and I've thrown some stuff away and remade it when I really didn't need to. The, the first few games that I ever right. created uh, for print and play, yeah. I printed out on cardstock that we had and then cut them out with a pair of scissors, just regular scissors. And I didn't mount them. I didn't glue them. It was just cut up cardstock pieces for the tiles and the cards. And, you know, I was able to play the games and that was what was most important. And now I'm, I'm coming back and being more of a perfectionist and, you know, trying to make the games look a little more professional, but if you're just getting into print and play and you just want to play some games, you don't need to rush out and buy super 77 glue and chipboard. You can just, you know, grab a pair of scissors and start having fun. And, um, you know, you, you can, you know, as, uh, as, as Jake said, you, you can build up to it. And, uh, sometimes it's good to not spend a lot of time on a game too, because, you know, maybe it's only got one or two plays and you don't really like the game that much, but if you really like it, you can come back and make a very nice version right. of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, jump to the question real quick here, um, because it is related to this. It, you don't want to spend a lot of time making the game, right? Uh, T. Mankel asks, why do so many people do who do print and play games do not supply a low-link version of the game? Well, I really appreciate the effort that goes into creating them and the generosity and sharing. No low-ink does, does put me off some otherwise interesting PMPs. So, yeah, a, a good way to make it easier on people, I think, is offer a low-ink version so they could try that out first, and then if they like it, later on they can go back and print the deluxe yeah sometimes that's tough if you're doing cards especially like for me because i've got to do two versions of everything then i've got to do a like the full-on version and i've got to do somehow a stripped down version mm, okay. um i mean there are ways to turn things black and white but a lot of times you know, my games involve color and that's gonna so, be a problem so- but if you're designing a game where each color has a separate shape to it which is good for colorblind players as well then there's a more of a likelihood that that can be turned into a grayscale or a color stripped down version for people to so what does make a game low ink? It's not just making it black and white. Then there's other. It's just not. It's not heavy ink. So it's not doing a game where all the cards have full red on the back. Mm. So yeah. you know, put your put your little logo in the middle, and then don't use you know tons and tons of black ink or red ink. These sort of flooded fields of ink yeah. are what really drain your cartridges quickly. This year, there's a game entered in the contest called Countdown to Disaster. And it has some really cool artwork. It's uh, the, the wiring of a, of a bomb, and you're working on trying to defuse this bomb before it explodes. That's the point of the game. Uh, the artwork, you know, it just looks like it would drain your blank, black ink cartridge because <laughs> it's, right. it's almost entirely black. It's got so much artwork, and it's, and it's really great artwork. It's a really beautiful game. And, but then the designer... Uh, it's Joe, and uh, forgive me, his last name has slipped my mind. Uh, but he uh, he also provided a low ink version where all it is is the wires, and so the the background image with the black and the you know the the inside of the bomb is just gone, and all it is is the wires. So it wouldn't take very much ink to print at all. It's just two strips of color across these tiles. So there's different ways of going about it, and and I I have to say I appreciate it when that happens too because. When I'm just trying out a game for quick testing purpose, yeah. it is nice to be able to print it without mm-hmm. killing an ink cartridge. <laughs> there also is, if you go into your printer settings, most printers these days have an Econo or a fast setting. Yes. So if you go into your settings and maybe under advanced, you can find stuff and you can actually print this economy setting, which will print it 
you know, kind of faded, but it will save your ink. Um, so on the other yeah. end of the spectrum here, check out the way your printers work, and you could probably find a, a good way to print something. And kind of get the gist of the game yeah. using a minimum amount of ink. Yeah, and all that's a good idea, because it's true. Just harking back to a, um, a thing Ryan said earlier, I think... Um, I find it really easy to do low-ink versions just on the grounds that I actually take completely the opposite approach to, I think, both Ryan and Todd. I, when I'm actually doing the, the design in the first place, it's all just outlines and geometric shapes and everything. So that, that becomes mm-hmm. my low-ink version. To me, it seems I would never spend a lot of time doing artwork when I'm just doing sort of prototype design. So, and There's there's one other designer out there. I think he's Italian. I don't remember what his name is. He's done um, a bunch of games over the years, but he does beautiful, beautiful games, and they're just basically text and maybe just a colored circle. Paolo. He did the, uh, he did the Roman, uh, one about the Roman senators. He does, what is it, Maroon 9 or Maroon 6? I'm trying to remember what his name is. Maybe it's Paolo? Yeah. But there are a couple of designers out there who do really nice minimalist work as well. Um, gorgeous, gorgeous work, and it's really, there's very little to print beyond text and the occasional little blip of color. Okay. Um, and also ask us, you know, if you if you really want a low ink effort, you know, yeah, I can. It takes me a little while, but I'm happy to do the. I'm happy to do my files in low ink for for people if they want. So, you know, direct message us, and we can uh, we can adjust. Okay. Um, printed and plain. I have another question, which is how much effort should a player commit? And I'm looking. I'm thinking. Yeah, it's kind of a dumb question. I think it's really how much do you want to commit as a player? How much fun you're getting out of it? Um, yeah, is that a contest-related question or just solitaire gaming in general? It was a printing and playing question. I mean, well, some of the stuff at Labor Love. I mean, some of the stuff Scott Everts does. His version of Dune cost him what, like three times. Uh, if you go out and buy, you know, Dune because he's got the pieces are all in the plastic and he's got the transparent stickers and. Wow. You can really get into and do beautiful, beautiful, amazing builds. Virgin <laughs> of, of Venus is another one that, you know, you could spend three or four hundred bucks doing that if you wanted. Wow. Some of those do look absolutely fantastic, but also I can't imagine where people find their free time. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I, and I think that is a hobby in itself is, uh, you're not, it's, I don't think that's print and play so much anymore as crafting a game. And that is a lot of fun, I agree. It, it can be. Um, especially because you get to make something that's very unique. Um, what are some sources uh, of components for for people that are going to play the games? I mean, you obviously could print stuff, but besides that, you could get things from other places. Yeah, thegamecrafter.com has uh, cubes you can buy, uh, as well as meeples and various other things. Uh, there's meeple source. I get my plastic boxes from Atomic, um, Atomic Rocket, I think. Um if you go on Amazon and search for 8mm cube, you can find sets of 50 cubes to buy on Amazon. Uh, or, you know, just go to the hobby store and bid yourself some balsa wood and some dowels and cut them down to sizes of things <laughs> to make handmade versions. You can get glass stones. You can go to the dollar store. There's dice there. There's often stones to put in vases for flowers that are colored that if you're not going to use, uh, you know, wooden cubes to count things in your worker <laughs> placement game, you can find glass stones that are different colors. I, I, I've, I've also been to thrift stores. I, I'm sorry, I, I cut you off, but I, I, I've been to thrift stores and okay. I, I look for games that have a lot of components and uh, something like Risk, if you can find the older edition that has the wooden blocks. I, I, I bought a few of those and I've used those for cubes for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, you get a lot of cubes for two or three dollars and, and there's some games that come with a lot of dice or, 
or other little figures. So, uh, I, I, I have bought. There's also teacher stores. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's teacher stores in some cities that you'll go and you can get a thousand tiny plastic cubes for, you know, five dollars in a big tub. Um, there are different colors. So those are people use those. There's also a geek list. Maybe a couple that I've seen that are about yeah. games you can buy yeah. just to s- s- scrap use the components, and so yes. like the, they'll they'll find like hey this game's fifteen dollars and you're going to get one hundred fifty cubes in it you know like weird examples like yeah. that that you yeah. can go yeah, yeah there's Yahtzee Junior is one that everybody scavenges to make uh, indented dice for doing things like Chunky Fighters yeah. Nick's uh, game and such. Um, so that's kind of the holy grail at uh, vintage or goodwill stores. Well, there's a newer, better option. There's a game called Cube Quest by Game Right Games. It's really, uh-huh. it's really fun, but it comes with eighty indented dice. It's like seventeen, eighteen dollars. <laughs> yep. Yeah, uh, it's not bad. I bought two copies: one to keep, one yeah. to have the dice. <laughs> and and also Andrew Tullison of Print and Play Productions will sell just components too. He'll sell you a bag of cubes or a bag of chips or whatever. I, I think he may have actually stopped doing that, actually. I think that was something he was doing in the okay. past. So oh, okay. I, hopefully I'm not saying the wrong uh, thing and killing his business, but I, I think he yeah. cut that off. I thought he started in quite recently. Okay. Well, I get my cubes of GameCrafter these days. They're pretty good in prices. So Here in the EU, we've got a Spiel yeah. material, which does the best prices there out in Germany. Okay, so look around, definitely. Um, borrow stuff from some of your games if you don't want to spend some money. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Some of your other games. Get your kid toys. I suppose you could even use Lego, if you have Lego. Just be creative. Um, if you buy a copy of my game, Sierra, there's 115 <laughs> cubes in that. <laughs> so, so we can buy it just for the cubes? That's what you're saying, Todd? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice thing with solitaire print-and-play games. Like Albert said, you can use Legos or whatever, and, uh, you know... You, you're, you're, you're just playing by yourself. You don't have to impress anyone else with how nice the components look, right? <laughs> yeah, the early version of Town Center that Alvin did well, it was all done with Legos. You built the whole game with Legos. So. Now, how about if, if you were a hardcore P&Peer? What kind of tools could they use? Any any suggestions for that? Well, I think definitely an X-Acto knife over a utility knife. It's much more versatile, and, and it, it you're not going to be holding it. Your, your hand's not going to cramp up holding it. I think definitely there's an 18-inch ruler out there that has a it's a clear plastic ruler with a grid on it and a metal edge, mm-hmm. so you can actually align things by looking through the ruler, and then the metal edge protects your uh, plastic from getting dinged, which then gives you bad cuts. Um, I know Jake said he uses a rotary cutter; those are helpful sometimes if you're doing long, long kind of links for cutting, because uh, you can quickly run through a bunch of sheets uh, for that. Um, it's a handheld one, as it goes. The cutting mat is important. Yeah, yeah, cutting mat. And those can be found cheap. I have a, I found a light board at a thrift store that that's been very helpful. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, for a lot. And yeah. that's really good for lighting stuff. And you could probably build your own light board without right. too much trouble. I bet. I've never tried though. Depends how hardcore you want to go. Really, I mean, my uh, my <laughs> copy of Polders was made with a, a router table to kind of little little windmills and <laughs> farmhouses and stuff. So oh, wow. yeah. how, much, how much effort do you want to spend I, on your PMP game? I, don't, I imagine you could spend a lot. I, I found a, at a thrift store, I found a, a folding chessboard, a checkerboard, and it had the, it was a wooden box with a laminated uh, board on the top, and I took it home and I very carefully peeled off lamination and printed out a, a map from another game and stuck it on there, so now yeah. I've got my little travel edition of the game. And actually Nick, uh, Nick Hayes found, if you go to Lowe's and Home Depot, 
You can get shelf paper that looks like the back of game boards, like it's got a leather kind of feel to it. And mm. it's actually just, you know, stick on shelf paper. So you can get really good, high quality sort of back backer boards to your, so you're not just seeing chipboard in the back of something. Um, I would stay away from foam core unless you really know what you're doing because uh, foam core will dull an exacto knife of about four cuts. Um, so you have to be a little careful with that. Um, cereal boxes, of course, cut those up. Okay. To, yeah, use cardboard, shirt cardboard. As I said before, three ring binders, um, backs of tablets. You can get chipboard out of all that kind of stuff. I, I, I save boxes at Christmas time to mount things okay. onto as well, uh, like just the regular gift boxes that you get at Walmart or, or wherever. Mm-hmm. I'll when the presents are open, I gather up all those gift boxes and put them into a little corner and then whenever I need to mount something I've got those um, and also yeah. as far as cubes and dice and other components like that go maybe because I make so many print and play games I I can't buy cubes you know like if, if one of Todd's games like needs 115 cubes I, I'm i not going to dedicate 115 cubes just to that one game I, I have a big tub of cubes and dice and other things and when I want to play a game I'll go and grab the components that I need and then uh, you know, mm-hmm. throw them back for the next game uh, later on. So I, I'm I kind of have a tub of reusable print and play components that you know go for an awful lot of games. Mm-hmm. I had a I have a uh, a box I bought from the hardware, one of those little cabinets with lots of little drawers for all the different screws. And I wasn't using it for anything in my garage. Yeah. So I finally brought it into the house and I put all my different components in there, sorted by colors and types and all that. So I could go there when I need to borrow something. There's also VCR boxes that you can get, you know, for pennies at uh, garage sales and stuff. You just tear out the spindles and you got a box that closes nicely and you put a one piece cover on it. There's a lot of people who do those kind of uh, okay, VCR boxes for tons games. Tons of choices. I, I th- see, it sounds like figuring all these things out on your own and figuring out what you can use is a hobby in itself and it sounds yeah. like a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I would say that that's probably more fun than saying, oh, what does Chris do or what does uh, Jake do? Yeah. You know, just, you know, find your own path and, and that's, that's part of the fun. And plus what I do, somebody else might hate completely. It's a very, you know, printing and playing is very individual. You know, we all have our own styles and that's part of the fun of it. Okay. So, so we've been talking, we've gone through the whole thing. I think right. we talked about how to enter the contest, how to come up with your ideas before that, putting things together, the printing and playing. And, and so finally it's time to vote. So we're, and we're getting to the end of the show here. How do you vote? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to – sorry, guys. I'm going to have to go at this point, Okay. unfortunately. Well, thank you so for joining us. Time commitment. <laughs> yes. So I'll send you a video file. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Tom. And uh, hope you, everybody Tom. enjoys the contest this year. All right. Later. Cheers. Bye. All right. Yep. If Todd's gone, he's not going to get <laughs> voted on. Yeah, so the first thing you do when you're <laughs> voting is you look for the games that weren't designed by Todd. And that <laughs> – <laughs> I'm totally kidding. He he makes terrific games. Um, so what I will do is create a form in Google Docs uh, and make that accessible. Uh, I, I, I link to it in the contest. So if you're following the contest thread, it's posted in there. I also put it in the first post of the contest, so it's always very easy to find. Um, and... All you do is you go there and there's drop-down menus with what's your favorite game, what game has the best artwork, what's the best war game, and all of the other categories. Those questions are optional. The only question that's usually required is what is the, you know, the grand prize winner for the contest, what's the best game. Um, 
And then you can vote on the other categories as you want, or, you know, if you've played some of the press your luck games, but you haven't played the war games, you can just vote on the categories that are applicable to what you've played. And, um, so it's totally free. Anyone can vote. Uh, the only requirement is, uh, you have to have a board game geek account. Um, so you, uh, you, you enter that in, and then when you vote, you also get a micro-badge uh, for participating in the contest. So you, you get a micro-badge either by designing a game and entering it or by voting in the contest. Okay, and these are two different micro-badges? No, the, there's just one participant micro-badge, but that micro-badge okay. is not for sale on BoardGameGeek. The only way to get it is by participating in the contest, either through voting or through uh, okay. through creating a game, or both. You know, okay. your designers are certainly welcome <laughs> to vote, too. I was going to ask, has, have you ever had the question, how many games did you try out? Do you know how many games people have been trying? Uh, I am going to add that one this year. I actually saw that question in the 18-card microgame contest, and it was really interesting to see the stats mm-hmm. and uh, see how many people had played uh, the different games. Um, I, I think... Todd Sanders uh, won that contest with his Maiden in the Forest game that he mentioned, and it was really interesting to see that that game also got the most number of players. Um, but it was, you know, as a solitaire game, you don't have to find other people to play with. So, yeah. uh, you know, I think it attracted a lot of players just because you know it was easy to make. You didn't need to find a, an opponent, and um, so the solitaire games in that contest actually did pretty well. Oh, okay. But I'd love to be able to show those kind of stats for this contest as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be curious about that. Just want to give yourself extra luck. Uh, so, how? Are, what's the ranking for the for the? Is it just whoever has the most votes wins each category? Um, I, I actually let people vote on their. Uh, they, they get to vote on three games. Like pick your one, two, and three. You know, your first place and your second favorite, and then each one of those. The first place vote would get four points, the second place vote would get two points, and the third place vote would get one point. And then I sum up the total of those votes, so it would be possible for a game that only got second and third place votes to actually win the contest if that first place vote had been divided across many, many other games. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know if that's ever been the case, but uh, that's kind of the, the method I've gone just because... I think we had one year where I just said vote for your favorite and that was it. There was no other candidates. And then the voting was so distributed across. I think the, the winner of the contest only had five or six votes out of the 50 that were placed because okay. it was just divided out. It, it, like every game in the contest got three or four votes. So <laughs> uh, I, I, I think this way it makes it a little bit more interesting. So everybody has more chances to get at least some votes. Yeah, and I, I think everybody probably has at least two or three favorite games from the contest. Okay. Um, and can you mention the voting window again? That's not for a while yet, is it? It's no, let's, uh, let me get the exact date for you. Sorry, it's on my other computer, which is uh, fast asleep right now. <laughs> Here it is. Uh, those dates for you. Sorry. No problem. Wow. Making for thrilling podcast, right? Here. So the uh, the the entry deadline is August second, and then the voting deadline is September thirteenth. So you've got a six week window where, um, you know, if if you don't want to come in and print a game right now, 
where you know maybe it's going to get changed a lot and you're going to have to reprint and and use some printer ink and stuff you can you know i think some people actually wait till the voting or the entry deadline has passed because then they know that the games are not going to get changed uh you know at least for that six week window and they'll start playing them then but Okay. Uh, that, that that those are the dates. So you've got up until September thirteenth to play the games. Okay. So right now, the, this is the point in time for people to participate if they're making a game or if they if they want to provide a lot of feedback and try and help make a game better. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a lot of people doing that. Uh, I've been following all of the contest threads, and there, there's people providing excellent feedback. That that must take up a lot of time. <laughs> there's some really generous people with their time. Um, okay, and the last thing I want to ask, is there any requests for voters? Like, should you abstain from voting if, if you haven't played enough games or anything like that? Or uh, I've never placed that kind of limitation on people. I, I would hope that people have come in and at least played, you know, two or three of the games at a minimum. Uh, but there, there's no restriction, and, and even if there was, it's... I don't like to put restrictions that I have no way of enforcing anyway. <laughs> That's true. It, 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 if somebody were going to cheat about something like that anyway, the ones that cheat don't care about the restrictions. They just ignore them. It, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah, I, I, I would recommend you know as, as many games as you can play, but I know that no one is going to be able to play them all. So Okay. Okay, so I think we've done a lot of discussing all of this. I don't have anything else to bring up. Do you guys want to mention any, any last things before we finish up any closing notes i mean i know for example chris you, you can talk about your your involvement with white dog games if you got anything new going on with that or, or whatever uh sure i'll, I'll jump in if uh, and then uh, ryan and jake can go uh I, I am working with white dog games still I've, I've got a game coming out on uh custer's last stand that's uh, in the development phase, and it's not a solo game, unfortunately, <laughs> for this podcast. It's a two-player war game, but that's kind of in the early stages of development. Uh, also working with Steve Kling for his new game company. Uh, he's got a solitaire game coming out on the Battle of Stalingrad. Uh, that's probably a few months out still, but really excited for that one. Okay. Um, and. Albert, I'll probably talk to you more when that game is actually released, uh, but it's going to be very cool. And then you've inter interviewed Herman mm -hmm. Lutman before about his game uh, on Dunkirk, The Spoiled Victory. That game is getting revamped and expanded. Okay. Uh, it's called Miracle at Dunkirk now. Uh, it's it's still in development as well. The the, the rule book uh, is, you know, is getting a little bit bigger. It's It's probably taking a step up from a light war game to a medium weight war game. Uh, so that's that's exciting and coming up. And then also I am running the print and play news blog on Board Game Geek. So if you're interested in print and play games uh, and want to know what's new, what's just coming out, uh, and what's kind of exciting right now, I, I just list all of the, the new print and play games that have come out in the last week. Uh, also the games on Kickstarter that have a print and play option. And I'm, I, I've been, I have a lot of goals for that blog that, uh, you know, it's hard to manage everything I want to do with the time I have available to do it, but I am trying to do interviews with the designers about some of the print and play games they've made. Uh, I, and I've been wanting to do for a long time some tips about how to do print and play, you know, crafting, 
uh, and just write about what I do, you mm-hmm. know, uh, just so that people can read another vantage point about it. And um, I, I get asked an awful lot on that blog about how to promote your game, whether it's in a contest like the Solitaire Contest or you're just releasing a print-and-play game on BGG for free. So I have a post coming up uh, on promoting your print-and-play game once it's been made. So I'm trying to do a lot of things with it. So, But that's one of the big uh, gaming-related things I've got going on right now. Okay. That's on Board Game Geek. It's the print and play news blog, and I think the ID for it, if you want to search for it on the blog section, is twenty twenty. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll include a link for that. Uh, that's a lot of stuff oh, you've got going Albert. on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to take up so much of your time there, that's but fine. there is a lot of things going on, which is it's it's kind of cool. But yeah, yeah, you sound like a busy guy. Um, okay, how about you, Jake? Anything I care to share? Um, <laughs> I think I uh, the the one thing I did mean to mean to mention earlier and just um, think it in is there was a lot of talk of chipboard earlier on. For for those of us in Europe, we think of I'm, what you guys call particle board. For us, we call that chipboard. So it oh. sounds really weird. <laughs> so grayboard for us, it's grayboard or just cardboard. Oh, okay. Um, and I guess just yeah, thanks to Chris for the amount of work he puts in on uh, on the print and play community because it's <laughs> it's really appreciated at least from over here and uh, on yourself obviously for solitaire gaming. My pleasure. Um, before I go to you, Ryan, listeners or viewers or whoever, if you've got any last minute questions, now's the time. Uh, and and Ryan, anything you want to add? Or say. Sure. Um. This might be unnecessary for me to say, but I have the forum, so I'm going to use this opportunity. Um, After the contest ended last year, that was really my first time participating in it, and I didn't know what to expect. And there were some games that I was pretty harsh on. And after the contest was over, I kind of realized, and that's something I've always felt like a jerk about. So I guess anybody's listening, I didn't mean to be a jerk and hate on your game because I understand what goes into doing this. And, uh, I mean, it's hard to put yourself out there. I got, I mean, like I say this, I got, I feel like I got lucky and I won, but it doesn't mean everyone else didn't try their hardest. And I mean, I did it for the, for the sheer fun of it. And sure. When else did they didn't, I didn't need to be mean or rude. So it's just a blanket apology for everybody. If they're listening um, but that might be unnecessary, but if it isn't, contact <laughs> me and we can talk more. Um, yeah. But besides that, if, like I said, I just did it for fun. If you have a game that you are interested in making, just make it. If you just want to play some fun games, just come and play as many as you can. I think, Chris, you said in last year's podcast something that really took a lot of pressure off and it's Albert you kind of asked the question again is what if I can't play all of the games and I know I talked to a couple people who are like you know what I'm not going to participate because I can't play all of them but Chris you said something along the lines of it's not expected for anybody to play the games but one thing that's important is maybe certain games stand out to you and other games didn't and then that is just as important 
part that's an important part of whether the game's appealing or good is if something if it grabs your attention and if it did maybe it deserves your vote and that's okay and I think the idea that just play as many as you can but be okay with games um, that look really interesting or fun to you like gravitate towards those and Mm -hmm. vote the way you think and I think that's a kind of a way to make it okay that you didn't play, at least for me. So I tried. I, I couldn't play them all. Um, but knowing that no one expects you to and that it's okay, like, that's a good way to go about doing it. Going with that aspect in mind that it's just to have fun and to kind of be part of this community. And I think you'll have a great time doing it. That, that's a good That's a good uh, suggestion, a good point. It. It, I think it's a great idea. At the very least, if you're curious about it, go look at the, the thread, the discussion thread, and look at all the different games that are listed and see if any catch your, your eye. And it's all try them. You know, if it's just one or two still, even if you decide not to vote, at least try out the games because there's some really neat ideas out there. And and don't start trying games you don't think you're going to like, I think, necessarily. Um, if you don't like the theme, don't don't play it. Move on. It, it'd be unfortunate to, to vote down a game. And I guess you can't really vote down in this contest, but, you know, you don't want to give bad feedback for a game just because you're not into the theme. And I think that's unfair to the to the design of the game. Well, let me th- throw out just for this contest, I'm involved with several BGG communities, and, like, on the whole, I find Board Game Geek to be a really pleasant place. People are generally a lot kinder than in other corners of the Internet. But this contest is one of my favorite parts of Board Game Geek, this little community we have. like Every year we get new new people, but there's also this group of people that have been with the contest from the beginning or very early in the contest, uh, and they, they keep coming back year after year. And It is one of the most kind places. Like People are very polite to each other, and, and Ryan, I, I don't even remember seeing posts that I thought were rude uh, in the past, but what I've seen in this contest is even people who are competing with each other, people will go in and comment on the other designers' games and suggest ways that it could be better or say, I had a lot of fun with this. Like the, uh, It's a contest and people are trying to win, but I don't get a lot of sense of... You know, I'm going to destroy this guy. <laughs> like, I, I don't, I don't get any of that uh, from this contest. Really, it's just, it's such a, a happy community uh, of, of just people who share this common love of designing solitaire board games and playing solitaire board games. Um, it, I, I, I get the feeling that for a lot of people, winning the contest, while it would be nice, is kind of more of an afterthought to just participating in the contest. So. I, I really, you know, I, I support that. I, that's one of the reasons I love doing the contest. And, and also on the subject of, you know, are, do you have to play every game? Like, th- this contest is certainly not some draconian, you know, like, you, you are not allowed to vote. You're not allowed to participate. I mean, it really is open to everybody. And, um, you know, come and play what you can. Uh, if you have a design, please submit it and let other people play it. But, you know, just just come in and enjoy the community and and have some fun with the games. That's what's most important. Well said, and I guess we will close on that. So thank everybody for watching, and thank to to Chris, Jake, Ryan, and Todd for participating and and talking about this stuff with me today.
Thanks, Albert. Cheers. Thank you for having us. Okay, all right. I hope you enjoyed that. I sure had a fun time talking to, to Chris, Todd, Ryan, and Jack. Um, thanks again for, for coming out and hanging out with me for an hour and a half. It definitely was a nice conversation to listen to. Once again, I'm sorry I wasn't able to attend this one, but maybe next year. All right, and now we're moving on to the game of the podcast. This time we're going to be talking about Maquis, which was actually one of the winners for the 2013 Solitaire Print and Play Contest. It won a number of awards, didn't it? I think it won it won first place for best overall game. It had the best artwork, second best thematic game, the best hand resource, hand management game, and the best small game and also second place for the best written rules. So it won quite a number of awards, and it actually got published as an app. It's available on the Google Play Store for anyone who has an Android phone or Android device. And so it actually got published. So I'm always happy to see games from the Solitaire Print and Play contest becoming published and becoming bigger and and more available. just helps validate the whole Print and Play contest and validate how Solitaire is becoming more popular. Now, granted, this time it's just an app, unfortunately, but I know that there was another game, which I think you just purchased, Albert, right? Yeah, Reconquista was actually published. That was from last year's contest. Yeah, so I'm always happy to see these games actually getting published and getting out. So in McKee, uh, this this is a game where you're trying, you are the heroic revolutionaries, the Maquillards, and you'll have to apologize. I apologize for my absolute mangling of any of the French, you can probably tell I'm not French (laughs) and I don't really speak French. I speak Hebrew, but not French. So I apologize for mangling any of it, but you're revolutionaries of of Maquillards. I I think is how it's pronounced. I believe so. You're trying to complete every, every time you play the game, you get two random missions assuming you're playing random. You could theoretically just pick if you wanted, or if you want to pick one of the easier missions. But you get two random missions, and you're trying to complete it before 14 days elapse, or before the townspeople's morale is broken, and they give in to the evil oppressors, or all of your resistance agents have died. Now, this is actually a worker placement game, like we said, because they won that award. And in this one, you have a number of workers Theoretically, because this is available as a print-and-play also, you can use whatever it is that you want. I personally like trying to print them off as, as little faces that you put on cardstock or can mount it onto other cardboard. Or if you're playing in the app version, it's actually little faces that you can move around. And you'll take your workers and you get to send them out wherever it is that you want on the board. The board comes with a number of locations that are all interconnected. If you're familiar with how locations work in something like, say, Arkham Horror or Eldritch Horror, that you have a location as a big circle and lines connecting them in, in a map to send them out. So all of your people start off in the safe house, and you'll send them along whatever route it is that you want and, and plop them in a location. You'll take a turn sending one person out, and after that, the oppressors will send out a patrol you'll start with just policemen being sent out and they'll appear after you. The way the policemen work, and this can be a little confusing, and I know that it was confusing for me when I first printed the game almost a year ago. The way the policemen get sent out is there's a deck. It's called the patrol deck and it has 10 patrol cards 
and you'll shuffle it up, and that helps you pick where it is that the that the oppressors get to go on their turns. So after you take a turn, so that the patrol will go out. And the way it works is that it has three locations on a patrol. If the first space is free, it doesn't have anyone on it, either yours or theirs, they'll go to the second place. If the second place is also not free, it'll go to the third space. If the third space is also free, it is also not free, excuse me, it'll try to make an arrest at that place. It'll try to make an arrest at that place. So again, you'll start from the top down, and at the first place that he finds a player pawn, it'll make an arrest this time. So as long as any of the three places are available, even if one of them has a resistance worker there, it'll go to them. I played this wrong for a long time, and I thought this was crushingly difficult. Because the way I was doing it at first, I was doing this wrong. Again, I'm going to emphasize, this is not the way you play. The way I was doing it first is that when it has those three locations, if the first space, for instance, had my pawns on it, I would put a pawn out, and then he would always. I felt like I was always getting arrested because I would say that if the first place is taken up with a player pawn, you arrest the player pawn, even if there's spaces later down that are not available. And that's the wrong way to play. So I want to emphasize it because I had it wrong for a while and I got very frustrated with the game until I read through the rules and I'm like, oh, that's right. And the rules are really well written. I know that this won an award for having really well written rules. And it's totally not the rules' fault that I made this mistake. It's completely my fault. But the way it works is you look at the three locations on the board. If the first, if all three spaces are filled, only then will it do an arrest. So that means that the arrests happen a lot less frequently. <laughs> yes, you laugh. You laugh. Robert. You laugh. <laughs> that, that is a, a bit confusing, though. I mean, it's it's not a, a typical rule you see in your normal game. That's a bit innovative, and I think that makes it just harder to sink in is innovative but i like it because it helps first of all it cuts down the amount of components especially when you're doing a print and play it meant that the patrol deck is only 10 uh 10 cards but it it created an innovative idea where you want to you're allowed to look at the cards in the patrol deck that have not been placed as long as you shuffle it up again afterwards so you can see what your chances are and you can look at the board and figure out where they're going to go. And for example, if there's only two or something cards left of the patrol deck, you can look and see, well, I know that each of these places have this spot on them. So as long as I leave that spot open, I know that I'll sneak right through, for example. Um, and so as long as you're able to manage all of that and figure out where you want to go, you can take advantage of this patrol deck to really mitigate how much harm the patrol deck can do to you. So I liked, I, I liked that rule a lot once I got used to it. So even though it, it was difficult for me to understand and internalize, I appreciate it and I thought it was a good game design decision. Okay. Yeah, so moving back, I apologize we got into a little bit of the review there, but moving back to the way the game works. So you first are going to do placement. So once again, you get to put out one of your pawns and then the patrols will get to put out one of their pawns. So after you've put out, after both of you have done that, so you'll go back and you'll keep taking turns between the two of you until all of your pawns are out and all of their pawns are out. So after both of you have taken a turn, so with the placement phase, you'll again, you'll keep placing one after another until they've placed however many pawns they're allowed to, which is 
based either on however many pawns you have or the morale track. But they'll finish out all of their pawns, and you'll finish out all of your pawns. After both of you have finished off all your turns, only then do you get to go and take all of your actions. Now, for actions, typically what you're required to do is you actually have to get a chance for them to get back to the safe house. They'll start at whatever room it is they are at, and they'll be able to pick up something. So, for example, they'll be able to go to the grocery store and pick up some food. But if they can't make it back to the safe house because all the ways from the way to get where they are to where they finished is blocked, you won't necessarily get things. So when they went to the safe house, uh, when they went to the grocery store to pick up some food, if they can't find a way back, then they're going to get arrested as they're traveling back and then they're not going to have a chance to get home and you're not going to get the resources from them. So that's one of the other bad things about the patrol deck and where the patrol goes especially if the patrol gets centered really heavily around the safe house, you're not going to be able to find a way home and you'll be stuck in trouble. Some actions do get rewards. For example, you can go up to one of the radio locations and then they're able to make the radio home. They'll be able to make the radio to get a drop where you can then later go and pick up weapons or money or food or something like that. So they're able to get a radio in, but unfortunately you'll lose the worker on the way back. So that's how the actions work. So once again, you're trying to find a way for them to get home typically for most actions. Some of the actions, they don't need to get their way home. For most of them, you need them to take an action and then get home in order to do it. Once all of them have taken their turns, so all the patrol workers will then get cleared away and you move the turn track along one space further. As the turn turn track gets along, sometimes you'll lose some morale because... The town is continuing being occupied, so you'll lose morale. Usually, you're just getting concerned because if it moves all the way into turn fourteen, the game will end, and you won't be able to have win. Uh, you won't be able. The game will end, and you won't have won. Excuse me. One of the other unique things to the game is there's a number of spare rooms. When you move to the spare rooms, you get to pick a new way of filling the room. And so there's different types of spare rooms that you can fill it with. So for example, you can fill the rooms with something like a safe house, or you can fill it with a chemist lab who you use to turn medical supplies into bombs or a smuggler or an informant or a counterfeit or a propagandist. These things are very powerful. Usually it requires money to go ahead and unlock those. You'll need to have collected two money to be able to unlock them. But once you do, so it can really change the type of game that you're working for. So I know that for some games, for example, some of the games that come out, you need to make bombs to bomb their factory. For those ones, you have to have the chemist lab. But for other games, you'll want to focus more on the smuggler or the propagandist or the safe house. So your decision of what you want to occupy those safe ro- safe those those spare rooms with can really change based upon which mission it is that came out. Do you always have to occupy one of these rooms? You don't have to occupy one of those rooms. It makes your missions much easier. I know that even if I don't need one of the safe houses for one of my missions, for example, if I have my mission be, uh, what is it, aid the spy, um, I don't really need it because I can get everything I need for aid the spy from like radio drops. But it's still very useful to at least occupy one of the spare rooms with a safe house because that's more ways for you to get back. 
if you can't find a way to get back. So in the start of the game, in order to get to most of the boar, there's only two paths to get back to your safe house. If you get a patrol at both of the oh, both of the ways back to your safe house, you'll get locked out a lot. But if you go and put another safe house in one of the spare rooms, it's much easier to get back, which means that you're going to retain a lot more of your workers. Okay. That makes sense. So also, one of the a good goal of mine throughout the course of the game is being able to get more workers out. Even though if you get too many workers out, that means that there's going to be more patrolmen out. But having more workers means that you get a chance to do more actions, which is good. How many turns are in the game? There's 14 turns to the game, and if you reach the 14th in the game, if you haven't been successful on your missions, then you're going to lose the game. Some of the missions work even if you don't get back. For example, you can't have aided the spy. So the mission tiles also will change. Some of the missions have red arrows, some of the missions have white arrows, and again, if it's a white arrow, so it works. So for instance, you can save the you can aid the spy or blow something up even if you don't make it back, you've still done what you need to. But some of the other ones don't work like that. So Albert, have you been able to play this game? I did not get a chance to play it yet. I, I was actually hoping to play it last week, and I started feeling unwell, so I, I didn't get to play anything, really. But it sounds really good. Actually, I have played it on my phone. I did download the app and tried it there. Um, but I, I tried to use the rules off the phone, and unfortunately, my phone screen is just too small for that. So you, I think you really either need to read the rules first or have played the, the physical copy before trying it on a phone, or at least play it on a tablet instead of a phone. Yeah, I think that this is the rules for this game are really well written. So it, it is nice to read the rules in the printed version beforehand. I also think that the rules in the app version, although I'm not going to give a full review of the app, but I think that the rules on the uh, on the phone could be better written. I know that they miss out some key points of how to play, and it's really almost easier to come learn how to play from the rules. I'm hoping that the app will fix that at one point in time. I suppose we shall see. <laughs> okay, I, I will try it again, and I will go ahead and read the the rules for the printed game then, because I do think it'll be playable on the phone if you're familiar with it. It's it's just hard to learn on that. But for my review of the actual, of the board game, I know that one of the things I, I did do the print and play for this. Like I said, I think it was about a year ago when I went and printed this off and played it for the first time, and then once I got all the rules right, um. I really did like this game. It's I, I'm a fan of small, easily portable, and quick solo games. I, I get to play solo games a lot in the evenings, and so I like the idea of just setting up a game, playing it for like 30 minutes, and then packing it up, and, and that's good for me most of the time. So this one very much fits in there. Games are usually not even 30 minutes. Usually they're like 20 minutes. I'll usually play twice or so. It depends. It plays very quickly. There's not that much. You have some decks of cards, you got some workers, and if you play really simply, you can just have differently colored pawns. It doesn't, or you need three different types of pawns. One for you, one for regular patrol, one for the more elite patrol, the soldiers, uh, who can't be killed. Yes, you get to kill mm-hmm. the bad guys in this game. <laughs> um, so, but, it doesn't take that much to set up, so it's very easy to set up and very easy to get going. And I also, I think I mentioned this before, but I like the mechanic of the patrol deck. It makes it very difficult 
to predict if you figure out how to use the patrol deck well about using those three cards and if you know the patrol deck well and you can pick which spots are good and which spots are bad and where there's a risk and what sort of scenario you need to keep up for example if you know the patrol deck well you can go ahead and put out people early on in the game to ensure that you have a safe path back to your patrol house back to your safe house when you start when you set up in the beginning from your safe house, there's only two spots, two paths to get to most of the rest of the board. If you fill those up, assuming that the patrol deck doesn't go completely against you, usually you can maintain control of those two spots so you can get to the rest of the board easily. But on the other hand, there's some risk for that because if you're always going to those places, first, you have your workers being of less use, but second, sometimes that patrol deck will be able to... to go against you and you'll end up losing anyway and those people will just get arrested so that can make it very difficult another thing that i like about the game is that the missions add a lot of variability to it i almost wish i know it's kind of crazy to ask for an expansion for a print and play i wish this had an expansion to have more missions i've played all the missions a bunch by now the missions some of them are more difficult i feel some of them are less difficult but the missions are all very different. Some of the missions require you to get intelligence. Some of them require you to get bombs. Some of them require you to get a mix of different things or raise morale. Although really it's all about resource management and moving one resource to the next place. Since your resources can come from different people, it'll change how it is that it works. For example, if you want guns, the best way usually to do that is to go over to the if you can get enough, you can get airdrops to get some guns, or you can smuggle in money and pay off and buy some guns with some money. But if you get one of the missions which requires you to bombs, you have to head over to the doctor area and get the medicine, and then go over and open up a safe house so you can unlock bombs. So each one of those is a different method of doing it. And because those different methods affect different about how you're going to be using the patrol deck, it makes so that each game you have to deal with the patrol deck differently to keep open different avenues. And because you're normally doing two missions at once, the different avenues will work differently. And it becomes a very difficult balance between being able to get the right ones to come out at the right amount of times. And I just wish there were more missions. I wish there was different types of them. And it could just be because I've played the game a bunch since I printed it a year ago, which I suppose is a good thing. But... (laughs) I've played a lot of the missions a lot now, and I wish that there were some that were just a little bit more different at this point in time. Being that I've played the game now and have really enjoyed it for a year, I do recommend it, though, and I can't really place that as a negative in the category. I've been playing it for a year, and I really like it. I'm just ready for an expansion. Give me an expansion. <laughs> Come on, Jack. You can do it. <laughs> yes, please. That would be really awesome <laughs> if you could. Please. Now, do, does, the, does the theme shine through pretty well in this game? It sounds like it does. The theme does shine through pretty well. Um, One of the things that I thought doesn't work quite so well is because you never really interact with the rest of your town. Theoretically, the idea of the story is that you are attempting to get rid of the oppressors. You're trying to knock the policemen out of town, get rid of them. And so sometimes you'll kill the policemen and they'll send in soldiers I didn't ever quite understand why they don't just... If you're blowing up the train or the factory, why they're not going to just send in a bunch of soldiers and just completely hunt you down. But I like the the theme. 
I do like the theme, and I'm glad that they picked this theme for this game. I imagine they probably could pick some other themes. I'm not sure what. But I like the theme. You never really interact with the other people's. I suppose that just is simply because it's a lighter game. They didn't have all that in there. And it's built in well. I like the art on the app. So I know that they did a redesign of the art on it. The art on the app that you get now matches really much the art on the redesign, or perhaps the art on the app was borrowed from the redesign. So the art looks very nice and does help bring that through so you can really see all those tokens and all the art on it looks very nice. And I'm glad that the app chose just simply to really just take from the art of the redesign because the redesign was was really well done. And so being able to collect the different types of resources and help them out to the propagandist all makes it look really pretty. Um, so that also helps evoke the theme. Okay, yeah, I agree. I really like the, the art now. No, one interesting thing is the, the origin of the word maki, it, um, it's... It actually means it's the bush, as in a thickets and that sort of thing. And it's an Italian word from Corsica. Huh. I wonder mm. why it's called Maquis, then. <clears throat> is that the name of a town? No. Well, the... the, the What is it called? The Maquisards, as they were called, would uh, actually hide in the, in the jungles and the mountains and forests and stuff. Oh, so it was yeah. sort of named after these are the guys that are hiding out in the bush. Look at that, very nice. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I, I was reading they you know they considered other words like um, the bois or the foray, which is you know the trees or the forest or the woods or the forest, but it didn't sound as uh, I guess intimidating as Maki did. And they wanted my key to sound intimidating. I think. I think it was a. I don't know. I guess it does in French. I mean, I you know, I like the sound of the word. I don't really. I know what it means now, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I approve the game choice. It's definitely a good choice there. But yeah, for the, for the print and play. I, yeah, Go actually, be, before I knew what it was about, I saw the title and assumed it was a Star Trek theme. Because the the, the McKee also was also the name of the Resistance group in uh, Deep Space Nine. All right. So I had that in my mind for the longest time. I was really confused when I when I saw pictures and it's like that. That's not Star Trek. <laughs> it's not Star Trek at all. Unless it's one of those weird episodes where they go back in history. But no. <laughs> so that's my key. I give it a thumbs up. Excellent. All right. Uh, th- thanks for talking about the game. Sorry, yeah. I haven't played it yet. Hopefully, you get a chance to play it soon, and hopefully, this review made you want to play it. It does. It really does, actually. And I definitely, I do recommend printing it off. I know that the print-off version comes with the the face counters, and you don't really need the face counters. Uh, By face counters, I mean that you can print off and have all the pawns be actual pictures or or drawn art of people. It's not really necessary to have the drawn art of people. You need need three types of of counters. It could be three pawns all the same, or even meeples, or anything like that that you have lying around. So you could just take the meeples instead of printing off those. Uh, it's a little bit cheaper on the art. I personally prefer even having nice hard wooden pieces, but I went and mounted those same pictures to cardboard tokens. So that's that's the best option if you can <laughs> do that. Cool, okay. So that's my key. Hi again, everybody. I wanted to present to you guys another post that I happen to see on Salter Games in Your Table. Now, I actually saw this a while back, 
but I still wanted to point out to you guys because I thought it was really nice. Someone posted up that they recently stumbled on Liberation. So this was from Baron Brendel, who said they recently stumbled upon The Liberation, which was a user-created solo campaign for Sentinels of the Multiverse. And the campaign was actually created back in 2012. And he went ahead and played through a campaign, and he posted up the results of his. That's a shorter one this week. I'll read it out to you guys here. The first fight was against the standard Baron Blade and Megalopolis using three heroes. He played it, he saw it was a perfect warm up, and he wanted to be thematic, and he chose members of the original Freedom Five, settling on Legacy, Bunker, and Tachyon. The beginning of the fight was a pretty standard affair. Blade got in a couple of good shots in Legacy, and the heroes eradicated any and all mobile defense platforms and all the rest of his defenses. Tachyon unleashed a lightspeed barrage doing 14 damage, and his embarrassed Blade had to flip already. Another turn later, she had another lightspeed barrage and coupled it with Bunker's Omni Cannon to do another 20 damage. It was already the end of the Baron. So the first one ended up in an easy matchup, but it was good to fall in with the Freedom 5 again. So Baron Brendel's posting this up helped me go ahead and take a look at the Liberation. And I got a chance to play through that campaign also, and I just really was happy they posted it up and told me his thoughts about it. I do like Sentinels of the Multiverse. It's a nice nice little card game. I was not aware of this uh, campaign, and I, I like Baron Brendel's write-up of his initial outcome on it. Sentinels of the Multiverse is a nice one to have be very thematic, and Baron and, and Baron Brendel chose to have a, a thematic start with it, putting together the members of the Freedom Five. So thank you to Baron Brendel for posting that one up. All right. Thank you. I'll be, sending, I'll be contacting you to send you a die. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at julius at oneplayerpodcast.com or jlbird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at albert at oneplayerpodcast.com or fractaloon on BGG. Our website is oneplayerpodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at oneplayerpodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at donpancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening.